Are you still mixing station gas and oil for your string trimmer, leaf blower, or chainsaw? Eliminate the mess and the guesswork with True Fuel, the original pre-mixed two-cycle fuel. True Fuel is ethanol-free and precision-engineered for small engines, improving performance, and extending the life of your outdoor power equipment. And True Fuel is available for both two- and four-cycle engines. Empower your equipment with True Fuel. Available at your local home and garden center today. Introducing the SD Podcast channel, your one stop source for all types of podcasts. We are always on the look for new podcasts to join our channel. If there is any topic you would like to discuss, contact us now. We can be reached on all social media such as Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. You can also contact us by email or leave us a voicemail at 516-570-9248. So make sure to contact us now so you can start your podcast soon. And now, a beauty production presents... The most awesome podcast to ever embrace a pair of headphones, Sarasso and the Beard. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Sarasso and Jose the Talking Beard Rivera. And welcome to Sarasso and the Beard Podcast, episode 35. I am Nick Sarasso. And I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And after a little bit short break, we'll call it like that Christmas vacation. We are back in the NFL playoffs. Are here this weekend, Saturday and Sunday. The threes versus the sits, four versus five. We'll get into that very shortly because that's going to be a huge topic for us. But I want to start with the NFL regular season. And, I mean, when we came into the year, to the NFL draft, Baker Mayfield, Sam Darnold, Josh Allen, Josh Rosen, and even later in the first round, Lamar Jackson, three of those guys were the starting quarterbacks for their teams. By the end of the season, all five would be this was a huge rookie class of uh, quarterbacks, and I was like, who standed out the most to you? Well, yeah, you're right, Nick. I mean, this. I mean, going into this, we knew this was, you know, one of the bigger QB classes we had in a while. All five QBs had first round potential to go in the first round, um, and all five did. You know, we we knew a lot of teams were clamoring for QBs um, going into the draft, and some teams even traded up to go get them. But we knew that this was like this was the QB class where if you needed a QB, um, you needed to grab one now. Um, sorry, New York Giants, but yes, you needed to grab one now in this class because there was plenty to go around. Um, like you said, all five of them ended up starting, uh, which was a little bit surprising to me. I thought a couple would have definitely held the clipboard for the entire year. Um, when you look at how the season went down, I actually don't blame most of the teams for starting their rookie QBs now. Um, and getting their feet wet in the 2018-2019 uh, regular season. Um, but like you said, when someone steps out as much as Baker Mayfield did, um, to me, you know, he didn't make the playoffs, but Baker Mayfield took a huge, huge step forward in being a leader in a clubhouse in Cleveland. Um, you know, we're talking about a QB who didn't even start the year, but ended up throwing the most um, touchdown passes by a rookie QB this year. Passing Peyton um, yeah. Yeah, and honestly, Baker Mayfield, he may not have the skill set that Sam Darnold has or Josh Rosen has. You know, Baker Mayfield may not be physically the best QB in this draft class that we just had, but what Baker Mayfield does have is attitude. And I feel like that's really, really going to help the Cleveland Browns going forward because the Browns just don't have an identity before Baker Mayfield came in through the door. Now, the Browns have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. We're talking about a team that went, what, 1-15, and 0-16 oh, the past couple of years. They went, what, 7, 8, and 1? 
that is a huge giant step forward for the Cleveland Brown fan base. I mean, they've won seven games this year. That's more than plenty in in the past couple of years, Nick. I know we joke around about it all the time about how they're going to make the playoffs, but because of Baker Mayfield and his confidence, I feel like that's a realistic goal that they could obtain as soon as next year, granted that they put the right pieces around them. So I think Baker Mayfield made the biggest impact, not just on the field, but also off the field in terms of his swagger and what the Cleveland Browns can accomplish next year. When you consider Cleveland, we're talking about Cleveland as a playoff contender next season. I, I think that's remarkable to say on the impact Baker Mayfield and, and yes, Nick Chubb as well. Um, overall, I think Cleveland is a very complete team and they just lacked that one piece of quarterback. And before I jump into mine, I'll, I'll give a little bit of fight just on the five. Uh, Josh Rosen to me, I think he still has uh, the most potential, even though he did not show it this season. I think he was mixed with the most, the worst offensive line. Yeah, completely possible. not. It wasn't his fault completely. <laughs> when when your game plan of Josh Rosen is to stay in the pocket and pass, and your offensive line just can't give you time, it's going to result in a lot of stats taken. It's going to uh, result in a lot of interceptions. And I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, especially with, you know, a rookie head coach that really didn't even use David Johnson to his full potential until halfway through the season. Uh, so there's a lot of Arizona has to work on. Uh, then you say Sam Darnold, he was the third pick in the draft. He played very well, and I know we saw a lot of interceptions, but over the last four weeks, I think he had, like, no interceptions except for that one game with Miami. So I would at him he's very much improving. Uh, again, there's not much around him yet. No running game. Crowell hit the IR. A lot of players like Bilal Powell. So he was left with not much to work with, and we saw a lot of wide receiver injuries for him the entire year. Uh, if the Jets can get some offense pieces, he'll be much better. But 17-15 from touchdowns to interceptions, not bad consideration. I thought the who would have been the worst out of the five was Josh Allen, and on fantasy purposes, he was the best quarterback from 11 to 17. Lamar Jackson, we know what he's done. The Baltimore Ravens are in the playoffs. I think he's gone, what, sits and one since he took over the job? Uh, but it's a different game plan than most quarterbacks. But I'm agreeing with you at the end of the day. Jose. It, the most standout quarterback was Baker Mayfield. Uh, they're one more first down away from eliminating the Ravens from the possibility of getting to the playoffs. They had a great comeback against a very tough Ravens defense, just losing that game 24-26, uh, so the Ravens got to the playoffs. But they're, they're, they're a first down away from being in true field goal range and eliminating Baltimore from the playoffs and giving the Steelers the chance to get in. Uh, but this is a, a very exciting time when you consider – the quarterbacks that are in the NFL right now, and I know the draft this year for quarterbacks isn't going to be that strong. Giants should just be shaking their head. Uh, but, no, Baker Mayfield, like you said, the most passing touchdowns for a rookie, and he did it in, what, 13 games, three less than what you're supposed to be playing a full season of. And out of every team that we just named, there's one that's a true playoff contender come that season automatically, and that's the Cleveland Browns right off the bat. Uh, so Baker Mayfield, for me, was the best rookie quarterback this season. With that, though, was he the rookie of the year? Did he beat out Saquon Barkley, or is there another rookie 
that stood out to you uh, for the rookie of the year? You know, I've been going back and forth on this, and in my in my mind, I like to use rookie of the year as like an MVP, you know, for the rookies because you want to choose the best rookie that there is. And if we're going by that logic, then yes, it is Baker Mayfield because of the fact that he took Cleveland from being a loser to being a contender, a team with an identity. But at the end of the day, I think I still have to go with Barkley. I mean, the stats are there. What you know, Barkley played on a really bad New York Giants team this year. So I feel like that took away, you know, a lot from what he did. And also the, you know, people who really wanted the Giants to take a quarterback probably didn't give Barkley the full credit that he deserves. Barkley is a phenomenal running back, right? Um, so it's really not a bad thing either that the Giants took Barkley. But Barkley was phenomenal this year. He, I believe he tied for the most uh, scrimmage yards by a rookie, by a running back in a season. So what Saquon did was just as phenomenal. And the stats are there. So I feel like I will give it to Barkley because he was so impressive for a running back. You know, basically was there for every snap from week one to week 16 or week 17. So I'm going to give it to Barkley. But I wouldn't be surprised if Mayfield also takes it as well. But I will give my vote to Barkley. I'm going to go the opposite. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, It's hard to ignore 2,000 yards from scrimmage. I think any time you can get somewhere near that. Uh, you should be considered for, you know, Rookie of the Year, MVP. You, you're in the talks of whatever the position is for you. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, Baker Mayfield made history. Baker Mayfield made the most passing touchdowns as a quarterback for his rookie season. Uh, we saw a different life for the Cleveland Browns. And if you had asked me, as far as who had more of an impact to their team in every situation, as well as putting up great numbers on the field, I think Baker Mayfield passes Barkley. So I'm looking at a few more intangibles than just stats, and I know I should just be looking at the numbers, but even by the numbers standpoint, 27 touchdowns, that's really hard to ignore from any rookie. And so that stands out to me at the end of the day, so I'm going to give it to Baker. Uh, and... I also kind of view it as, you know, when we look at rookies, the moment after they're no longer a rookie, we start to owing them, you know, not a veteran, but we put them in the class of everybody else. And it's where do they rank with their position. And to me, Barkley is not a top five running back. I, he's in my top ten, but he's not a top five running back. And I think Baker has the potential to get all the way to a top five quarterback. Uh, right now, he's probably on the outsides of – I want to say he's probably in my, like, 8 to, like, 13 range. So he's not in the top 10 officially yet for me. But I I think he's certainly got, like, potential to be top 5 at the end of the day. And this still will happen if, like, Brady and Breeze retire immediately. He moves up two spots pretty quick. But with that as well, we always talk about MVPs. Who was your MVP for this season? Well, my MVP this year is going to have to be Patrick Mahomes. Um, I mean, you want to talk about people who made an impact this season. To me, it's Patrick Mahomes. I mean, you know, ties Peyton Manning, or I believe he passed Tom Brady and Peyton Manning, where he tied them for most touchdown passes uh, in a season with 50 touchdowns. You know, talking about your first full year as a quarterback for a team, um, that to me is a definition of what you want when you want your your rookie last year to hold the clipboard for the entire year. Um, 
and to me, Patrick Mahomes just you know took over for this team, and especially when the Kareem Hunt um, situation happened, I feel like that's when I really, you know, for me it came down to Drew Brees or Patrick Mahomes. But when the Kareem Hunt situation went down, that's when I really believe it was Patrick Mahomes because you know Kareem Hunt was a giant part of the Chiefs' game plan. Um, but once he went down, and once you know once Hunt left the team, they basically became one dimensional as a passing team. You know, they don't have as good of a running back without Kareem Hunt you know, as to when he's on the field. So it really forced Patrick Mahomes to step up, get creative, and he really did just that. If the Chiefs go anywhere, it's going to be because Patrick Mahomes leaves them there. Um, so to me, it's Patrick Mahomes for MVP. Yeah, I'll take the guy that threw over 5,000 passing yards, 50 touchdowns, and overall, right out the gate, looked like he was going to win the MVP and never slowed down. I mean, the offense just never slowed down for a moment. They finished with uh, the first seed in the AFC. There's not much of a reason to go anybody else here. Nobody had anywhere near the numbers of Patrick Mahomes this season. And congratulations, Dan. And at the end of the day, you can tell me about Todd Gurley. Would have won MVP if he probably played these last couple of games. No, he wouldn't. Quarterbats don't lose MVPs. Running backs don't win MVPs anymore. It's just it's a quarterback award. It's it, to me, it's like the Cy Young in baseball. It's only a pitcher winning it. Yeah, maybe a relief pitcher may win it occasionally, but it's only a pitcher stat. Nobody else is taking it. In the MVP for the NFL, it's a quarterback position, and it's a quarterback uh, every year going to be there. Um, I think I would ask you defense player of the year, but I think you would tell me Aaron Donald and. I'm going to say Donald, and I think everyone's going to say Donald. So let's skip the defensive player of the year. We, I think we all. Yeah, know I mean, 20, 20 and a half sacks. I don't think there's much debate right there, Nick. <laughs> I, I, it really is almost like, will he win unanimously? I think those are some of the questions when it comes to like Patrick Mahomes and Aaron Donald. Uh, Which is kind of funny that we're talking about that, considering that, you know, Khalil Mack had a fantastic year. And a lot, there was a lot of great defensive performances this year, but Aaron Donald just blew everybody out of the water. It's still not close. Exactly. You can tell me Khalil Mack has been phenomenal this year, and he, he out the gate was amazing. But it's it's just nowhere near. And so it's, it's going to be interesting to see if whether it's one of these guys win unanimously because, I mean, overall, I don't think there's anybody that put up much of a fight against them. Uh, but... Other guys that have always been up for MVP consideration, I'm going to use this as a good segue, uh, Antonio Brown. And, and what happened to him? We thought originally week 17 against the Bengals, he was out for a knee injury. Uh, I got a little worried because I wanted the Steelers to win that game, make it really close for the Ravens. But what, then a day later we find out, no, he got benched. Uh, for missing team meetings, for missing practices. And, and this is not really a true shock when it comes to Antonio Brown because we've seen a lot of the issues in the past with the Facebook Live videos, uh, the, just the problems that he brings up with the team. And is it time for the Steelers to consider cutting ties with Antonio Brown? You know, when you have a star wide receiver like Antonio Brown, the skill set is there. He's a fantastic wide receiver. Um, he's one of the best in the game still, right? And you know he, you know he does bring a certain swagger to a team too to help build their confidence. However, if you're the Pittsburgh Steelers, 
This was a year, as their tight end Jesse James said, we were on the ticker for ESPN for too many reasons that just wasn't about football. And for the Steelers, it's time to get back to being about football and not the drama, not the Kardashian drama that a football team has to endure like the way that they did this year. So if I'm the Steelers, usually I don't say you get rid of a guy like Antonio Brown, but if you're the Pittsburgh Steelers, you need to move on from a guy like Antonio Brown. You need to get back to winning football games. And <clears throat> they had the Le'Veon Bell drama this year. <clears throat> Excuse me. They had the Antonio Brown drama this year. They really need to get back to winning football games. And when you have a guy like Juju Smith-Schuster, you are able to do that. Because Smith-Schuster is a guy who is, be- is about being loyal to the fan base. The fans love him. So when you have a guy like that to back you up as the- to become the new number one receiver on the team it's easier to get rid of a guy like Antonio Brown. And honestly, the Steelers need to take a lesson from the Patriots where they don't allow any bullcrap. They don't allow any sideshows. You never hear a Gronkowski in the limelight. Well, you do, but like he's never overshadowing the team's winning. You don't hear Tom Brady going out and partying. You don't hear other receivers going out there and bringing a bad name to the Patriots team, minus Aaron Hernandez. Totally different story, though. <clears throat> but... When it comes to the Patriots, they don't allow side drama. They don't allow side shows. And if you're the Pittsburgh Steelers, you're one of the most storied franchises in football history. But over the past couple of years, you've kind of been labeled as a joke because of all these side stories with Bell and and uh, Antonio Brown. So if I'm the Pittsburgh Steelers, yeah, I send a message to the rest of the locker room by saying, hey, we're the Steelers. We play football here. We don't do all this other bullcrap. So if I'm the Steelers, you move on from Antonio Brown. You can still get something for him. You know, a lot of teams will break the bank for him in terms of picks or whatever you want to seek for him. So if I'm the Steelers, I move on from Antonio Brown and get back to be about winning football games. Well, let me ask you to flip on this one. Um, do you think it can be solved with a different head coach? You know, honestly, I, I've, I've seen that and I've seen – you know, James Harrison, be critical about Mike Tomlin again. And I honestly don't think it's Tomlin's fault completely. I mean, what exactly are we blaming Tomlin for? Benching Antonio Brown? If the guy is not showing up for meetings, and I understand it's a must-win game, but if the guy is not showing he wants to be part of the team, should you really be held responsible for not playing him on Sunday? No, 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 no. I mean, no, no. By all means, I agree with the benching. Um, I, I mean, like... Do you think that a different coach can get Antonio Brown more off this path that he's on? Like it can be fits with a head coach or there's no fitsingness from this organization. He just has to go to a different team. No, I, I think he has to go to a different team. And honestly, there there's no guarantee that if he goes to a different team that that coach can contain him. I think this is an Antonio Brown issue where it is what you see is what you get. This is Antonio Brown. And these antics are going to follow him everywhere. So the real question is, if you're a head coach or if you're a team, are you willing to put up with this in order to get the guy that Antonio Brown is and his skill set? See, I think it's more about taking the good with the bad with Antonio Brown. You get a phenomenal receiver, but you get all this side business too. So I don't think a new head coach for the Steelers is going to contain him. But the question is, what head coach is willing to put up with him is the real question. And I just think Mike Tomlin is a no-nonsense guy. So, I'm kind of on both. I, I think 
the Steelers are in complete dysfunction. And there was this has not been something new. I think this is just being more it's going further and further and further. So when it was beginning we thought it was will Big Ben still be the quarterback of this team in two years, or does it sound like he's retiring? Uh, then there's issues with the offensive coach, and then they get rid of the offensive coordinator. Uh, and there's always the issues with Mike Tomlin. And then we have the Facebook Live video. Now we have the Le'Veon Bell situation. Uh, there's still issues with Big Ben. Antonio Brown now more. And it just seems like it just grows and grows and grows, and there's no fixing it. And it's very hard to do anything but to just clean slate it. And that might be what the Steelers have to do at this point. Net, come that season, Le'Veon Bell is not going to be on the team. I don't think come that season, Antonio Brown is going to be on the team. It's very tough to willingly want to trade what can be easily a top five wide receiver in the NFL, but I don't think Juju's Smith-Schuster is that far away from the top 10 or that much different. Obviously, it's great to have them both, but overall, when you compare the stats of the two players, they're not too far off. I think Juju... Uh, honestly, Juju can be a top five receiver by the end of next year, in my opinion. I think so, too. If, if you're talking about Juju being just the number one option, it's hard to see him not being a top five wide receiver just by high volume. Uh, alone, and we hear how much Big Ben loves Washington, there's a great chance that he could fill in as the number two at that point. Uh, they already have a strong uh, tight end in McDonald. But I do think this stems more. And I do think that of the head coaches that need to go, I think Mike Tomlin may soon be on that list because one more bad season or a bad early start, and I know that's a little tough for Pittsburgh to have – you know, bad starts or uh, real struggling seasons, but there's not much on a fine line because you have guys that are constantly leaving your team or having a lot of troubles inside the team organization. And, you know, at the end of the day, I kick that to the coach. And I think almost like a new coach can be a difference maker for that. I don't know if it fits the Antonio Brown, but I do think the Pittsburgh Steelers need to be looking at new coaches. Uh, there certainly will be plenty of options for coaches because a lot of them were fired. And this is going to be our last topic before we get into the playoffs for football. But Arizona Cardinals, Steve Wiltz, Denver Broncos, Vance Joseph, Miami Dolphins, Adam Days, Cincinnati Bengals, Marvin Lewis. That was the moves on Monday. We still also had Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Dirk Toetti, Toetter. I'm going to butcher that one. Uh, the New York Jets fired Todd Bowles. I'm sure a lot of Jet fans are a little bit happy. And we still had earlier in the season Hugh Jackson and Mike McCarthy as well get fired. Uh, so, Jose, we're going to ask two questions for you. One, who was the most surprising head coach to be fired? And the other question is, which job opening is the best to consider? Honestly, the most surprising in my eyes was the Bengals firing Marvin Lewis. And you know me, Nick. I Every year, I call for the Bengals to fire Marvin Lewis because, I mean, let's just face it. The stats are the stats. No playoff wins at all for, for Marvin Lewis in his, what, 16 seasons with the Bengals? That's just not acceptable. 
Um, so I was actually surprised that the Bengals actually pulled the trigger and actually made that move to get rid of Marvin Lewis. Great for them. Honestly, it was the right move. But as it stands right now, you know, you get rid of that Marvin Lewis, good move, but I was still very, very surprised. This might shock you for who I pick for who is the best job opening. I'm going to say the New York Jets, actually. Why? Because you have a very young QB in Sam Darnold. You, you know, you just locked up Quincy Inua for four years, so he's going to be here. In the draft, I really feel like the Jets should either get a defensive end or they should really target a top wide receiver at some point in the draft to get Darnold a really good wide receiver option as well, too, to pair up with Inua. Um, if I'm pronouncing his name right, I'm sorry if I'm butchering it. But, you know, and then also you do have a pretty good defense, too, for the Jets, too. You have a guy in Jamal Adams who really took a step forward this year in being a vocal leader and saying what the team needs and calling out the team in press conferences to really help them step up. He does it in a respectful way. So when I say calling out a team, I'm not saying it in a disrespectful way. You know, I feel like he does it so the team can get motivated and step up. I feel like there's a lot of good young talent on the Jets. They just need the right person to put it all together and some more pieces, too. So the GM really needs to get the work in and really start adding pieces to help Sam Darnold out. That way, he's not throwing all these interceptions. He's not forcing all these looks that aren't there. But if I'm a head coach, I like Sam Darnold, and I like the young defense for the Jets. I love Jamal Adams. So there might be something going on there as long as the rest of the pieces keep being added for the Jets. And you're also looking at a division that could be pretty competitive. I like Josh Allen, but I'm not sold on the Buffalo Bills entirely because the Bills is a dysfunctional organization. The Dolphins are always a weird team. One year they're in it, one year they're not. So really, if you're looking at a team in the AFC East, the Patriots are right there, as always. But if you're the Jets, it could be a two-team race if you add the right pieces. They do have money to spend this offseason. So if I'm a head coach, I would look to go to the New York Jets. I know people are going to say Green Bay. You might say Green Bay, too. But outside of Aaron Rodgers, there's just nothing there. And how long can Aaron Rodgers really keep doing it on his own is the question for me. So I would be Jets 1, Packers 2 if I had to make a choice if I was a head coach. So, the most surprising one for me is Steve Wiltz, the Arizona Cardinals, and it's really hard to say a three and thirteen team. It's surprising to see that head coach get fired, but a first year head coach with a rookie quarterback and the worst offensive line in football—that's surprising to see a head coach get fired. Especially a defensive coach like Steve Wills. And look, at the end of the day, the GM's been there longer. The GM pits a lot of the players. He makes the team. And this team went 3-13. and And the guys he put around the Arizona Cardinals went 3-13. and And the head coach on the first year gets fired. I, I don't think anybody thought Arizona was going to be great. The fact that Seattle's been a Super Bowl team. Even on a rebuild, they still know how to make the playoffs. You have the uh, the Rams, who were considered the best team in the NFL going into the season, who finished with the second-best record in the NFC. You had the 49ers, who had Jimmy Garoppolo. And when you consider the quarterbacks that were in this division of Garoppolo, Jared Goff, Russell Wilson... 
I mean, we're, we're not talking about an easy division when it comes to quarterbacks. And Josh Rosen, who is a first-round draft pick this season, is nowhere near the level of these other three. I'm, I'm certain he can get to that part uh, eventually if given the right tools around him, if given protection. But this seemed like a very strange firing for me because there's just not enough to go around. Usually you're given a second season, even if you've had a down year from the later, from the other head coach. Matt Patricia is a good example. He came in in his first season. He had a worse year than the Lions did the year prior. He still has his job. And I, it's not a complete shot for that to happen at times. So that one to me is the most surprising one to see. Um, as far as which job opportunity uh, seems to be uh, the best choice, I don't know if the Cleveland Browns will really be looking for a head coach. I think their interim head coach will most likely be the head coach of this team for the future. But as far as this one goes, if that one's a little bit of a uh, possibility to use, I will say the Cleveland Browns. Uh, I think out of every team, they have the best possibility of making the playoffs come that season. Uh, so I think the Cleveland Browns have the best opportunity. But if to ignore that one as my choice, because most likely I think we can all agree the interim seems like the best choice the way he, that the team has played since he took over and since Hugh Jackson was uh, fired. I'm going to give it to the Cincinnati Bengals. Uh, you know, you had 16 years of Marvin Lewis. You do have Andy Dalton, and there are some question marks there on whether what you go with him for the future or you try and go a different route for a quarterback. But your offense contained Joe Mitson, A.J. Green, although he missed the end of the season, Tyler Boyd, who looks like a phenomenal top-wide receiver, to have that all paired up with you already. They, are, and they have a lot of injuries offensively at times, but this team, if it's very, if it can stay healthy, the Cincinnati Bengals, I think, could be a very good team. I don't think they're far away from the playoffs. I think a new uh, coach that can come in is going to be a huge change of pace from 16 years of the same thing of Marvin Lewis. And if you win one playoff game, if you get to the playoffs and win one playoff game, you already won more than the previous head coach. So it's easy to replace the guy that you're considering compared to like a Mike McCarthy who's won a Super Bowl with the Packers. So I look at that as an easy uh, one. And I think as far as a roster goes, the Cincinnati Bengals are a little bit more complete. Uh, There is just a couple question marks for them. And with that... We jump right into the NFL playoffs, and we're going to start with the first game on the schedule for Saturday, and that's the Indianapolis Colts, who finished the season 10-6, and versus the Houston Texans at 11-5, and and Jose, what's like, before you give us the win, uh, who you have, what's your biggest X factor to this game? I'm sorry, one more, uh, one more time. Which game are we starting with, Nick? The Indianapolis Colts and the Houston Texans. First game <clears throat> of the playoffs. Who's your big X factor? To me, the X factor here is going to be the – well, it's not just one person. But to me, it's the, um, the wide receiver core for Andrew Luck and the Indianapolis Colts. Um, how open can these guys get against a really strong defense for the Houston Texans? The Houston Texans have a really, really good defense. And finally, they have the offense to go with it with Deshaun Watson – so, 
in my opinion, Andrew Luck can make things happen on his own, <clears throat> but he needs the help of his receivers to get open too. So can the receiving team, can the receiving core, can T.Y. Hilton, can all these other guys get open enough for Andrew Luck to make his magic happen? Because if they don't, Andrew Luck's going to have some tight windows to work with. And if they don't, it increases the chance that Andrew Luck's going to turn the ball over. Um, again, Houston has a really strong defense, so it's going to really depend on how the receivers um, you know, do against the uh, defensive team against the Houston, uh, Houston Texans. You know, one of, my, my X Factor is also going to be on the same side as yours, but I'm just going to name one guy. Uh, that's to me, is T.Y. Hilton. Yeah. In the game against the Tennessee Titans, two catches, 61 yards. He had one of those catches for 43 yards, only six targets, which was tied for the most of, like, three of the players on the team. Uh, T.Y. has not looked healthy. And really, when I watched that game, you, you could see that he was, he's was he been banged up all season long. Uh, it's, it was tough for me with having him on my, one of my fantasy teams just constantly hurt. But he's got to bring it to a Nets level. Because on the flip side is DeAndre Hopkins, who we know is going to have a good game, who we know is going to be a guy that, they're don't, that the Tetsons are going to go to on third down. And a lot of the times, Hopkins is going to make those catches. When it comes to the big game, who is Andrew Luck going to target? And in my mind, he's going to look at T.Y. Hilton, and that's the guy that's going to come up with the big plays. That's the guy that's going to make the catches. That's the guy that's got to break the plane and beat the defender right off the bat, and that's going to be very tough if he's still banged up, especially if they're giving him a lot of physicality on the very beginning of the snap. It's going to be harder for him to get out immediately. So to me, I know he hasn't practiced much this season, and he's trying to play a lot of games, and he's fighting through a lot of the pain, but this is one of the games where you're just going to have to ignore every moment of that and put out as much or as close to 100% as you can because when it comes to those big moments, Andrew Luck is going to target him, and he's got to make the big plays at the end of the day. Um, with that, I mean, who are you looking at to get past in this four to five uh, in this matchup? You know, usually it's it's kind of funny. One of those things with the Houston Texans is that they have to prove to me that they can actually win um, in the first round to get out of the first round, in my opinion. But I really think the Texans got a favorable matchup here up against the Colts. Um, again, Andrew Luck is good. The Colts are hot. They were able to win and get in uh, by beating the Titans. But I really feel like if the Titans would have won, it would have been a, a worse matchup for the Houston Texans. I think the Texans got lucky and, and got the matchup that they wanted. Uh, like you said, Hilton hasn't looked the most healthiest. And I have some serious questions about the receivers in general up against this defense for the Texans. Um, Deshaun Watson has proven that he can play in big games. And most importantly, Watson is finally healthy now. Um, <clears throat> and DeAndre Hopkins has just been a monster this year. Zero drops the entire year. That's fantastic. Um, I think the Texans, again, they really benefit from a matchup here where they should be able to beat the Colts. So I think the Texans get it done. So for me, I'm, I'm going to go to the flip side. You know, only one point is separated the difference between these two guys, these two teams on this spread. And for the season, when you add up the total points for the two games that they played, it was only one point differential. Um, this is basically a pick em game. You know, and the fact is, I'm going to Indianapolis. The, the team is, I think, 9-1 and one with, like, 
the best record over the last 10 games. They have had one of the best offenses uh, since Andrew Luck has gone out and just completely shredded every team he's faced except Jacksonville, um, where he lost it's nothing in that game. But you look at everything else, he's putting up major games. A lot of times, Deshaun Watson does make a big-time turnover in games. Uh, he's done that consistently, but I'm going with the better quarterback at the end of the day. I'm going to take the road team that's very hot all season long. Both of these teams have been hot since, what, week three or week six. Uh, but for me, it's going to be Andrew Luck and the Indianapolis Colts get it done. And I think it's, at the end of the day, a great story for the Colts. You know, Andrew Luck was... You didn't even know if he was going to be really healthy this season after missing all of last season. The head coach that they wanted from New England decides he'd rather be an offensive coordinator with New England, so they get their secondary first-year head coach. And they're still able to get through all this, still able to get through a lot of injuries. And I, I think the fact that Houston doesn't really have a run game will play into a factor for this, but I'm going to give it to the Indianapolis Colts with the win. And already, we're separated on one of our differences to begin. Let's go with the second game. In the, uh, this one in the NFC, though, on Saturday night. It's the Seattle Seahawks, 10 and 6, versus the Dallas Cowboys, 10 and 6. The Cowboys are home. For some reason, they started Dak Prescott in Week 17 when they didn't have to. I don't understand that at all. But what's the X factor for you in this game? Uh, to me, the X factor in this game is going to be the uh, Cowboys defense. Um, and I'm sorry if you want me to choose one person. But to me, <laughs> this is just the entire group as one. Um, can they contain Russell Wilson? Uh, I think looking at this matchup, I think, okay, Cowboys, you know, they won a semi-weak uh, NFC East. Um, you know, the Seahawks are hot right now. Russell Wilson is doing it all by himself. So if the defense can contain Russell Wilson – the Seahawks team will not run efficiently. Um, so really it comes down to how well can this defense contain Russell Wilson? You know, it's it's interesting with the Seahawks and Cowboys because essentially these are the same two teams that wear just different uniforms. Seattle uh, leads the league in rushing attempts all season long. Over 50% of their plays are rushing. Uh, we know for the Cowboys that their game plan is always just hand the ball to Zeke and feed Zeke. Uh, both teams, great defenses, especially at the middle line linebacker position. Uh, so it's, it's very interesting. You have the same game plans. This is going to be who can get those first downs, who can get those, who can really fight for it. Um, one of the big stats for me that stand out, Cowboys are 7-1 and one at home this season. They have not been able to really get it done on the road, but they certainly have got it done at home. I think that continues on. My X factor, I'm going to take one of the bigger names, is going to be Elliott. Because if he has a big game, if he has a great game, the Cowboys are winning this game. If the Seahawks can contain Elliott, the Seahawks are going to win this game. So I think this really is... It's always the game plan for the Cowboys. If you can stop Elliott, congratulations, you're going to beat us. If you can't stop Elliott, you're going to lose. We're going to drown and pound with you. We're going to control the clock. 
we're going to keep your offense off the field, and we're going to put up points. I think Sweet 17, even though Dats should not have been playing, I think should be great, um, you know, great hype for him. The game that he had, the amount of touchdowns that he was thrown, yes, he faced the giant defense, and that's not the Seahawks, but certainly so. Uh, there should be a lot of confidence in Dak after a game like that, and I think Elliott's going to be the X factor. I'm going to give it to the Cowboys in this one. And, Jose, who do you have in this one winning it? Uh, well, before I give my prediction, but like you said, you said that you don't know why Dak was playing in Week 17. I believe that's why he was playing. I feel like even though Dak has been playing well, I feel like he needed a game like that without Elliott and go out there and win a game like that to give him even more confidence knowing that, hey, even if the Seahawks shut down the run game, I can still win this through the air. Maybe not, may not be the case against the Seahawks defense, but I think that's a huge confidence boost for Dak Prescott and the Cowboys. However, I'm going to roll with the Seahawks on this one because, to me, Russell Wilson is the best QB in the league right now. And yes, you can write it down. You can put me on record saying it. I think he's better than Aaron Rodgers. Russell Wilson is the best QB in the NFL right now. And if Russell Wilson goes on a playoff run, a serious run with the Seahawks here, I feel like he will go down as, for sure, the best QB in the NFL right now. I have the Seahawks beating the Cowboys again. To me, the Cowboys aren't really a complete team. I feel like they really are one-dimensional. I feel like if you shut down Elliott, then it's very easy to take care of the rest. And I feel like the Seahawks can do that. Um, and again, Russell Wilson does it all on his own. So, you know, and they had actually had a good run game with Carson in the backfield this year. I feel like this could be a redemption year for the Seahawks. A lot of, you know, in the beginning of the year, a lot of people counted them out because of how good the Rams were supposed to be and how good the Rams were. So a lot of people forgot about the Seahawks. Remember, coming into this year, you and I both talked about on the podcast about how difficult it might be for the Seahawks to even make the playoffs this year because of how competitive their division was supposed to be, right? Jimmy G was supposed to be healthy and leading the 49ers to a playoff spot. He got hurt, so they kind of got, you know, it was an unfortunate circumstance that counted them out early. We talked about how good the Cardinals could be if Bradford would have played like the, a couple of years like he did ago um, and if Josh Rosen would take over. You know how good the Cardinals could be when they're fully healthy and they're playing like they could be. We were talking about how the Seahawks might be the fourth best team in this division, yet they're in the playoffs somehow because of Russell Wilson. So to me, Russell Wilson makes a huge difference. And if you have that guy on your team, you have a great chance of winning. So I have the Seahawks over the Cowboys. So with that, we move to our Sunday games. And the first one is the AFC matchup of the San Diego Chargers versus the Baltimore Ravens. The Baltimore Ravens getting in on week 17 the Chargers were really in a couple weeks prior to that they were trying to get the number one seed finished down at five as they couldn't overthrow the Chiefs these two teams faced each other not too long ago with the Ravens winning a road matchup 22 to 10 so this is an interesting one for me but what's like your big X factor of this game my X factor for this one's going to be Melvin Gordon. Um, you're talking about a player that was injured the, you know, a couple of weeks to end the season. Um, how healthy is he going into this one? Because, again, <clears throat> the, the, the thing about the Chargers is that they're very dynamic with the passing game because of Phillip Rivers, obviously, one of the top five QBs, but also with the running game because they have guys like Melvin Gordon, right? But if a guy like Melvin Gordon is missing, again, they also become very one-dimensional and they have to rely on Phillip Rivers, which is usually not a bad thing. 
because Phillip Rivers is a phenomenal quarterback, but you're also facing a really good defense in the Baltimore Ravens, and they have a good defensive backfield with guys like Eric Weddle, who's going to be very motivated to face his former team in the playoffs, right? So the thing is with the Ravens is they have a great defense, but if you're a one-dimensional team, that's just going to make it easier for this defense to feast off of you. So the question is, is Melvin Gordon 100% healthy? And how big of an impact can he have in terms of, you know, mixing things up for the Chargers on the offense? You don't want to just pass. You don't want to just run. Because, trust me, if you do only one thing against this Ravens defense, they will feast on you. So, my X Factor, I was going to try and use Melvin Gordon, but I'm going to use a different (laughs) offensive player. Uh, Keenan Allen. All right, so his last two weeks, he's not had great games. Five for 58, four for 64 in the final two weeks. That five for 58 was against the Baltimore Ravens. But you go to the weeks prior to that. It'll start in November. Sits for 124. 57, uh, then it sits for 57, a touchdown. Nine for 89, and a touchdown. Seven for seven, 72 yards, and a touchdown. 14, 148, and a touchdown. Five, 78, and a touchdown. A lot of touchdowns in those. Keenan Allen started the season only having one touchdown and then for five straight games puts up touchdowns. This is a guy that they have to target. He has to get open. He did miss time in a crucial matchup uh, when it came. What? And he's missed time at some points with an injury when he hit the bat to the end zone. He was out for the entire game, didn't have any targets for that moment or didn't have any catches for that game. But this is the true, one of the best wide receivers in all of football. He has to be the guy that they go to because there's going to be a lot of times where the Chargers are going to be in third and one situations. And the Ravens just make you have to get those first downs on third and one. And he's the guy that's got to make those catches. He's the guy that's got to move the chains, get in the open plane, get the big plays, get the first downs. We're just going to be targeting him a lot in this game. I'm expecting a big game from Keenan Allen. And I also have the Chargers winning this game. Look, I'm going to give another 7-1. The Chargers are 7-1 when they're on the road this season. The Nets' best AFC team has five road wins. They're just a different team on the road. They're a lot more confident, I think. I think they have just... You know more fans that go to the road games at that point, or or something along that why, but Philip Rivers gets it done at the road. Veteran quarterback versus rookie quarterback. I know we always see these defensive win championships, but it's really going to come down to offense. It's really going to come down to these first downs. Chargers have a very good defense. I think they'll be able to stop or contain Lamar Jackson. And Lamar Jackson is a guy that turns the football over far too much, way too many fumbles. And that key, to me, is going to be a big difference. When you can get the difference in turnovers, when you can force the turnovers, and if you had to give me a choice of who I expect to turn over a ball a little bit more, I'm going to go with the Lamar Jackson side because of his fumbles, because he's going to run out the pocket. It can just result in a lot of boom and bust plays. And those busts can be all it takes to lose a football game. I'm going to give it the Chargers. They're actually my favorite spread of this weekend. They're getting three points on the road when they've been 7-1 and one on the road this season. I really like them for that matchup. And I really, they're my favorite spread when you consider the other ones this week. 
Jose, who do you got? Well, we're disagreeing a lot this week uh, on this week's podcast, Nick. I'm actually going to roll with the Ravens. Um, I agree with you. Veteran QB against rookie QB, something's got to give. But the Ravens team is hot right now. When Lamar Jackson took over, it gave this team an injection to come alive again, really. I mean, this team was dead, in my opinion. And when Lamar Jackson takes over, this team found their swagger again. This defense is just as good as the Chargers defense. They have a lot of good defensive backfield. Uh, The Ravens have always been known for their defense, and it shows in a lot of different games. Uh, And also, I think Lamar Jackson... Again, I just I take I like to play the hot hand, and Lamar Jackson is the hotter hand right now with the Ravens. You know, a couple of years ago when the, when uh, it was almost two years ago actually with the infamous boat picture for the Giants, uh, the Giants arguably were a better team at the time when they faced the Green Bay Packers. But that was also when the Packers were on their six-game winning streak, and Aaron Rodgers said relax, and the Packers mowed them down in that game. The hot hand tends to take over, and the Ravens are just really hot right now. Take nothing away from the Chargers. They had a fantastic season, and they're a fantastic team. But I'm going to go and play. I'm going to take a risk here and play the hot hand and roll with the Ravens. I think Lamar Jackson has something to prove, being the last pick of the first round. Remember, he made a promise saying Baltimore's going to get a Super Bowl out of him. I think Lamar Jackson has a giant chip on his shoulder. He has something to prove, and he's going to get the job done on on Sunday. I think this is the first time we've disagreed this much. Since the Mets got you on assessment or something along that line, uh, it, it has been a while since we we've we are three for three on, and this is surprising. So, not really helping my betters' confidence here. But with that, we got one more game to cover for the uh, for the NFL, and then we'll go back to one last question for the NFL. Let's start with this: it's the Philadelphia Eagles who got in thanks to the Chicago Bears beating the Minnesota Vikings on week 17 versus the Chicago Bears. Um, For the beginning part, Nick Foles. He doesn't necessarily have to win this game, in my mind, but if he has a good, strong game against the Chicago Bears defense, or even if he has a bad game, do you feel... He should be a starting quarterback, whether on the Eagles over Wentz or on an NFL team at this point. So, <clears throat> he should be a starter. However, he should not be starting over Carson Wentz. And here's the thing, and this is actually what I'm fearful of. If Nick Foles goes out there and wins another Super Bowl, you know fans are going to be yelling, screaming that Nick Foles should be starting over Carson Wentz. But here's the thing, you just can't do that. Carson Wentz is still a very young quarterback. Carson Wentz, to me, is still an amazing talent. And there's going to be years to come where Carson Wentz might be the best QB in the NFL. And I guarantee that there will be a time when Carson Wentz will win a Super Bowl with this Eagles team. I know Nick Foles is going to come in there. He's going to have a great game. And I feel like if you're fans of the Eagles, you can't get lost in this you know, love story, this folk hero story of Nick Foles coming in, being the backup, winning another Super Bowl if they get that far. You just can't do that. However, he should be a starter on another team. To me, I think he could be the starters on the Eagles if they didn't have Carson Wentz. But to me, Carson Wentz is the better, younger option. So if you're the Eagles, you should really be taking advantage of this performance and looking to trade Nick Foles because there will be a team that's going to overpay for him because they're going to be like, wow, this guy is just doing phenomenal things. We're going to overpay 
give up a first-round pick maybe if the Eagles are lucky. But there will be a team that's desperate for Nick Foles. Do I think he's a starter? Yes. On the Eagles, no. And I really hope the Eagles are smart enough to really resist that temptation of choosing Foles over Wentz, even though you know there's going to be fans out there that are going to be yelling to start Nick Foles over Nick, over Carson Wentz. Yeah, I, th- I think he has to be a star. Uh, he has to be a starter somewhere. I, I don't really... If you give me a choice between Carson Wentz and Nick Foles... I still say Carlson Wentz. There are some question marks of can he truly stay healthy at the end of the day. But you, you, you're talking about a backup quarterback. One of the two are a backup quarterback for you. They can't be both worth not a first-round pick. Jimmy Garoppolo was traded for, what, a, a high second-round pick. Or but mid, we believe, though, that the Patriots pick. really sold short on that. They did. They did sell short on that, but the fact is you don't keep it at the end of the day. Uh, because what are you going to do? You're going to try and re-sign Jimmy Garoppolo where he wouldn't have played all season long this, this year over Tom Brady. And if Tom Brady comes back next season, he doesn't play, and you're going to pay two quarterbacks. It was never going to happen. He was going to have to get traded because he would have been a free agent. And you can only tell a quarterback, hey, you have to stay with us for this like five million when he goes out and makes one hundred and twenty five million. The Eagles will have to trade one of these quarterbacks because you can't just try and go into every season with the idea is I have two starting quarterbacks and I can only use one of them. So they're going to have to trade them. There's a lot of different teams that can use them, two of which are in their division. I don't know if they want to go that route, but... If you have to give me the choice, I'll take Carlson Wentz, but I would be very concerned about his injuries. But at the end of the day, you have to trade Nick Foles. But honestly, end. you say concerned about the injuries, but the guy, to what, tore his ACL, which really is like a freak injury. You know, that, I mean, that just happens in football. And then the only other injury he had this year was with his back. I mean, Carson Wentz doesn't have a long-out injury history. Yeah, but that's two straight years for a young guy. That's what's the concerning factor is this could just be the beginning of a long list of injuries that he's just not a guy that can play 16 games in a full season. It's it's one thing if you're like Big Ben. Big Ben is going to get hurt. Big Ben is going to get banged up. He's going to miss probably a game or two during the season, and he's going to spend probably four games injured to not his fullest potential. But he's going to be in that lineup. He's going to be on that roster. He's going to start the games. And Carlson Wentz's injuries are more significant than that. Cam Newton's another example. Cam Newton's been banged up. But Cam Newton's able to play. He's not getting the significant injuries. Carlson Wentz does. And I think Keenan Allen is the only guy I would call the freak injuries. Whereas, like, a pendants burst, like, two seasons ago. And then on the first play on, on the very next season, um, in the first eight minutes, he tears his ACL. So I think there's more of the freak injuries on, like, a Keenan Allen side than a Carson Wentz side, as far as that goes. Um, nonetheless, though, I think at the end of the day, you still can't have two quarterbacks of the, uh, the type of Nick Foles and Carson Wentz and say we're okay with having two and not trading one away. 
I, I think there comes a point where you have to give, you have to consider trading one away, and I think the value can only skyrocket more if he has a great game against a defense like the Chicago Bears. I don't even think winning is the, uh, it's just a good game. If he wins, I think that's over the top at that point because he's proven he's also a playoff quarterback. But who is your X factor to this game? Well, my X factor is going to be Mitchell Trubisky. Um, this Bear defense is phenomenal. And I feel like they're really going to be able to keep them in the game against the Eagles. Uh, but my question is, and it's kind of funny because I was praising Lamar Jackson. But when you're a young QB, and this is your first time in the playoffs, this is your first real meaningful game, how do you respond? And I feel like Trubisky, you know, again, this is a guy who faced a lot of criticism because last year wasn't exactly one of his best years, you know, since he took over for the Bears. But how can Trubisky handle the pressure of facing another good defense on the opposite side of the ball in the Philadelphia Eagles, right? This is going to be a good defensive matchup. Nick Foles has been there, done that, won a Super Bowl. He might not have any pressure on his shoulders. Like you said, he doesn't even have to win, and he knows he's probably getting a starting job next year. For Trubisky, this game matters a whole lot more in terms of, is this the right choice? You know, people are going to be speculating it for years. Can the Bears really win with Trubisky? Is he the QB of the future? It all starts here, in my opinion. Can Trubisky keep his composure and put out a good performance to help the Bears win? Because you know the Bears' defense is going to keep them in the game. So mine's not going to be a player. It's going to be a matchup. Bears running game versus Philly's defense. Uh, Philly, in the second half of this season, has three games where they've allowed over 120 rushing yards per game. That, to me, is a difference maker. If the Bears can play their style of football, which is the ground and pound, which is hoping Mitchell Trubisky doesn't make too many mistakes, and let the defense do its job, keeping the offense on the field as much as they can, putting up some points here and there, but getting great field position when the Bears make the turnovers. The key of this is going to be running the football, getting those first downs, getting those short third downs that Mitchell Trubisky can convert, whether he uses his legs or his arm in those games, um, or the dump-off passes to a guy like Tyreek Cohen. Jordan Howard, Tyreek Cohen. Jordan Howard's been running the ball very well these past couple of weeks. Tyreek Cohen was more the guy that they, they've they just had that their, their own X factor all season long. But those two guys combined, how will they do running the football against the Eagles defense? Because if they can have a successful dam, if they can have a strong dam, if they can force Philly to have another one of those games where they're allowing a ton of rushing yards... The Bears are going to win this game probably easily. Um, I like where the spread is at. I kind of had it as a sits when the season began. Uh, when I f- when these two teams were going to play each other, I really, if I'm given a choice, um, the Bears are my favorite money line pick of the week. Uh, obviously, I'm taking the high. I don't want to take that many points, but I got no problem taking the Chicago Bears at home. I think that's a little bit different for Nick Foles. Uh, Foles really hasn't had that many road matchups when he's taken over for the Eagles. And I don't think he's faced a defense like the Chicago Bears over the last year and a half that everyone has had this Foles mania going on. So I really think uh, the running game and just overall, I think overall the best bet of this week is the money line for the Bears or the Chargers spread. 
And who do you got winning this game again, you said, Jose? Well, we finally agree on something, Nick. I'm going to take the Bears over the Eagles. Um, this defense is just crazy in, in terms of Chicago. Honestly, the impact that Khalil Mack has had on this Bears team has been fantastic. Kyle Fuller, to me, is a great defensive back. That might be a problem for some Phillies receivers. And also, again, this team is just, they're hungry. This is a team that was not good last year. And this is a team that, you know, history shows that the Bears are a storied franchise. And losing the past couple of years the way they have hasn't probably sit well with a lot of Bears fans and the Bears ownership. So this is a team that's motivated to get out there. They were my surprising team of 2018. I didn't think they'd be anywhere near the playoffs. I think the Bears get it done. I think they're really motivated. And again, you know, I think the I don't know if the Bears will make the Super Bowl, but I do think the Bears will make a deep run in the playoffs. Um, but honestly, like teams should really watch out for the Bears because I think a lot of people aren't giving them the credit that they deserve. So, the one last topic I want to have on football before we move into a little bit of basketball. Uh, what was the biggest NFL telling story for you this season? I be anything that you so choose but what what stands out to you the most as far as this season goes well honestly to me i think it's the uh john gruden was a mistake uh storyline honestly and you know i'm not even gonna say it was a mistake because we don't know how it's gonna end when it's all said and done but i do think hiring john gruden to me was a waste of time i think that's a better way of putting it because to me john gruden comes in and he has a very talented football team in front of him. But he trades away a guy like Khalil Mack. He trades away Amari Cooper. I don't know what Derek Carr's future looks like in Oakland, honestly. But, you know, this is a guy who comes in here and it looks like he wants to put his own stamp on his team, right? He wants to make the Raiders look the way he wants it. He wants to inherit his own players. He doesn't want to get these other players that were already there. But in my opinion, you have a great team. Why not just build upon that? You know, the, the Raiders could have definitely kept on winning if they would have still had Khalil Mack, if they would have had Cooper and just, you know, let him struggle a little bit. He was having a bad season, but he was able to turn it around in Dallas. And I don't feel like that's totally Dallas's responsibility. I think Cooper, you know, stepped up his game when he went to Dallas. You know, I think Cooper eventually would have found his way in Oakland, too. And, you know, you have a very talented quarterback in Derek Carr, who, again, his future's kind of up in the air there. You know, I just don't understand what Gruden is trying to do. You know, you inherit a good team. I understand you want to put your own spin on it, but you don't trade away players like this good just because you don't want them because somebody else drafted them or whatever the reason is, honestly. To me, I think if Gruden wanted to do this, Gruden should have went to a team that, you know, a team like the Cleveland Browns where they're all young and, and they're still rebuilding or something. You don't go to an established team and, and, and make noise there and reshuffle the deck when it's already a pretty good team that could have that could have, you know, contended in a division this year. Yeah, Oakland's draft pits are going to be the real difference factor. Um on his, as far as how well John Rudin can do and the players that they draft this season. Because they have I think a couple first round pits from everything they've gotten from Mar Cooper and Tuil Mack and their own terrible draft spot. Uh so and it's going to be interesting if they try and make a few trades, whether if they try and trade a Derek Carr uh, as a possibility for even more possible pits. But uh, how they do there certainly, I think, will be the ultimate factor on John Gruden. Uh, for me, I'm going to say 
in an offensive league, we always look at the quarterback. And I said it like the MVP, I think, is just a quarterback award. Uh, we look at guys like Patrick Mahomes. We talked about guys like Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, Drew Brees. But the run game, the ground and pound game, I, I think still matters and still can get it done when you consider teams like the Ravens made the playoffs and the Bears making the playoffs. And yes, they do rely on defense, but they rely on controlling the ball and controlling the clock a lot. Cowboys and Seahawks are facing each other, and they're the same two of those fortes. Uh, I could even argue that Todd Gurley is more of the ground and pound game because we've seen how uh, the one game where it's like the Rams were just a non-factor when Todd Gurley just wasn't given the ball at all, but I think that's a little bit far. But still, in just taking those four teams alone, that's a huge amount of the playoff teams. That's 33% going with the ground and pound situations. And it's just working. And I think there are a few more teams that stand out in doing the same cause. Uh, you can argue guys like... The uh, New York Giants, especially with Saquon Barkley this year, have stuck to that uh, rhythm far more than in years prior now that they have a running back. Uh, We're seeing a lot of top running backs just show up all year long. It was very surprising to see how dominant running backs could be in the game again uh, compared to how much quarterback heavy and throwing the ball uh, it's been over the past couple of years. But Running bats, I think t- this was a huge step for them in the right direction. And, and the ground and pound game, as I-, I saw a lot of this season. And I enjoy that kind of football uh, far more than throwing the ball up in the air and hoping a guy can make a catch in a, a one-on-one or a two-on-one matchup. It doesn't always work that way, and I think it doesn't always give the reward uh, as far as the risk goes. So for me, the running game. I, I saw a lot of great changes there, and I think that was good for the, uh, that was the big telling story in the NFL this season. And with that, I think we've covered enough of football, so let's jump into just a little bit of basketball. Um, and I want to start with the Lakers. LeBron James, groin injuries, missed four games. I think they're one in three in that span. Rajah Rondo has been out for those four games as well. The Lakers have been in those games without him. But this is his first big injury, I'd say, because you expect him to miss a week or two, especially with you just don't want to force it back too early for LeBron James in his career. That, that to me is incredible. But do you see this as being a big concern for you with this being the first of a four-year contract and the fact that he's never really been hurt? You know, a little bit, but I think if you're the Lakers, you just play it smart and you let him take as much time as he needs. Because honestly, if you're the Lakers, you probably will make the playoffs. Even when he gets back, this team is playing pretty good. Brandon Ingram has taken a huge step forward, um, in my opinion, in his development, finally, um, which goes to show you the impact that LeBron James is having on these youngsters. Uh, but even if you don't make the playoffs, you know, it's not really about this year for the Lakers. I think everybody knows next year is the real year where we're going to be looking at the Lakers as a championship threat because they're going to go out there and they're going to try and sign somebody, which we'll get to in a little bit. But if you're the Lakers, let LeBron take, let LeBron take his time. I have a feeling LeBron James is smart enough to know that too. So am I concerned? Sure. But I'm also not, I know, I also know LeBron James is not a dumb man. Um, He's not going to rush back from this injury. 
you know, I'm not too concerned. I, I think I'd be a little bit more concerned as far as the playoffs go this season. Uh, I, I think we... I, I don't think it's ever a good thing if a, a LeBron James team doesn't make the playoffs. And at the end of the day, whether he's an eighth seed or a one seed or a middle of the pat seed, it's LeBron James. And if you're going to tell me whatever time LeBron James is playing in whichever round, it's going to be the most watched. So I think there's a factor to that. Uh, there's not much concern for me as far as injury goes. I don't think this is going to be something that should be a concern for the future. I think this is just take your time. Don't rush it. If it takes you two weeks, if it takes you three weeks, if it takes you all of January, and we just started beginning in January, and he's been out already a couple, uh, four games. He, he's been out since Christmas, um, game against the Warriors. If it takes you a lot of time, it's okay. This isn't the year where we have to go all out. This is the year where we begin to see what everything comes be. Um, so that's what I'm looking at. But they're 21 and 17. They are tied with the Spurs for the seventh, eighth best record in the Western Conference. They're only a game out from fifth. They're going to have to pull off a couple wins without LeBron James because there are a lot of teams very close behind them. Uh, Luckily, they get New York as their next game, so that's going to be one where they just got to win off of, and they have a few less uh, easier games. Chicago, Cleveland, New York is three of their next seven, so win the games that you're supposed to win. Stay close with the games that you can keep up with. I think Oklahoma City, they both had terrible shooting nights last night. I watched the entire game, and it was miserable to watch at times, watching Russell Westbrook shoot, like I think, three of like 20. If he did that good, um, but the fact that you lose by seven in a game where you know the Lakers didn't even shoot well, uh, there's not too much concern for me. Uh, one thing that stands out to me though, Anthony Davis said he would choose legacy over money, and that's really rare to hear a player say. That's really rare to hear a player say like a year or two before his contract ends. Um, Anthony Davis isn't a free agent. Uh, he's not a free agent that season, and then he's got a player option in two years. So he's close enough to the free agent market or a consideration to trade him that season if he's not going to take the player option and he's not going to resign and he's not going to choose the money that the Pelicans could throw at him, where he could choose free agency over that less money for legacy. With that in mind. It doesn't sound like Anthony Davis is going to be a Pelican for long. Do you see him on a different team in the future? I do. Um, and again, he made it clear he's not going to choose the money. So, I mean, what compelling argument do the Pelicans really have to keep Anthony Davis other than the money that they can offer him? You know, this is not a team that's done a good job of building around him. Um, this is not a team that is really going to be like, oh, yeah, we can persuade free agents to come here to New Orleans. So, what reason is there for Anthony Davis to stay? I feel like there's just so many other teams that could probably use his services. If Boston chases Anthony Davis, imagine what threat they can be in the playoffs. If the Lakers want Anthony Davis, imagine him teaming up with LeBron. Uh, imagine if the Warriors, you know, if Kevin Durant walks away or if other people walk away, if Klay Thompson walks away, all of a sudden the Warriors could be able to sign Anthony Davis to a contract. Anthony Davis clearly wants to win a championship and 
New Orleans is just not the place to do it because they're not going to afford – if they're paying you all that money, they can't pay anybody else all that money to try and come here too. So New Orleans is just not an attractive destination. If Anthony Davis wants to win a championship, he's going to have to go somewhere else. You know, one of the things that stands out to me is, you know, JaVale McGee is only on a one-year contract. Tyson Chandler is only on that one-year moment of contract. Um, Zubach has only been there for two years. Uh, is only a two-year guy in the league. <clears throat> There's room for a center very soon. And I really like the Lakers getting Anthony Davis. Uh, far more than almost any other team. They have a ton of pieces around them when you consider Lonzo, Kuzman, Ingram, that they could always ship one away or two. Especially a net season situation where it's like, hey, you're not going to have Anthony Davis in a year. We'll give you this guy. It's not anything near of what Anthony Davis is, but it's more than you'll get when he leaves for us anyway. And I think that can almost be like the thing for them because the Lakers are going to make a move. They're going to make a play at somebody because we saw how it didn't work in their favor when it came to Paul George. And it's like everybody thought, oh, he's going to be a Laker, and then no, he resigns with the Thunder because he chose a little bit more money, security, uh, over uh, and future over going to the Lakers. There's always a chance that you know Anthony Davis is saying that now, and then he'll choose the money because it's hard to say no to the money. But there's always a possibility he's going to choose legacy, and there's a possibility that the Lakers go after him pretty early on for that. Uh, one last thing for the basketball before we get into baseball, just because this. Not too much basketball to talk about right now. We're in 2019 officially. Happy New Year to everybody. Uh, who poses the biggest threat to the Warriors at this point for 2019? Uh, well, I think there's two options. Um, the Toronto Raptors are still playing really, really well. Um, Kawhi Leonard has really you know, been on a, a vengeance tour. I feel like Kawhi really felt like people thought differently of him. Not that he cares what people think, but... I think, you know, a lot of people thought that Kawhi wasn't a guy who liked to compete um, when all that stuff was going on with San Antonio. And I feel like Kawhi is really flipping the script and showing people like, hey, like, don't forget about me. I'm one of the best two-way players in the league for a reason. And I feel like, you know, his confidence and his seriousness and, and the way he prepares for a game has really taken over the culture for the Raptors. And we spoke about this on one of our previous podcasts about how, you know, trading away DeRozan was kind of a message saying, hey, no more games, you know, no disrespect to DeRozan, but it was kind of, it got very serious once Kawhi stepped into the building on the court for the Raptors. And now it's really about trying to make it past the West, uh, the, I mean, the Eastern Conference Finals and into that final round, especially since there's no LeBron in the East to hold the Raptors back. So the Raptors are really going for it. Also, I do like the Denver Nuggets as well if we're choosing a team from the West. I mean, this is a team that has some serious power in the backcourt with Jamal Murray. And, and, and Gary Harris, and this is a team that can shoot the basketball. And last year, we saw the Warriors really struggle with teams that have bigger men in their teams. Remember, they struggled against the Pelicans in the regular season against Anthony Davis and DeMarcus Cousins when they were both on the court. I know Cousins is working his way back for the Warriors, so that should help them. But this is a team that could struggle if Millsap is on the court and if Joe Kick is playing the way that he can 
because this is a team that could play really big, but they also have a lot. They also have a lot of great shooters on their team too. Yeah, I'm picking one team is tough. Um, right now, I like. It's to- also really surprising that we have multiple teams, right? Yes, I think that's what a big standpoint is. Like, you know, I could choose the Celtics, but the Celtics really haven't gone that next level for me yet. Uh, the Seventy Sixers look very good, but. As well, they've lost a lot of the big matchups when it comes to the big games. Uh, losing to the Celtics in Boston when they had a lot of that game for time span. But they have certainly a big three around it. I think Joel Embiid, a, a big man is key when you consider how to stop the Warriors. Uh, especially when the uh, Cousins comes. I think Joel Embiid makes a big difference in that play. Uh, a Ben Simmons-type role can certainly be a great defensive stopper for a Kevin Durant. And then Jimmy Butler also, uh, as I'm saying this, I really love the matchup of the 76ers versus the Golden State Warriors. But I'm going to give it to Toronto because of Kawhi Leonard. You know, he's, he's, what, a year or two removed from when we were considering him, you know, a top three player in the NBA. And when they faced off against each other, we've seen Toronto having the edge. We've seen Toronto win a lot of big road matchups in the Western Conference. And I think that's very rare to see when it comes to a lot of the Eastern Conference teams. Uh, Toronto is very good at home court, so I'm going to give it to Toronto. There are other teams, like you said, Denver and Utah, who play against the Warriors very well. That the fact that if they were to control home court... I'm not going to say that could be the the X factor, but that certainly is a difference maker because when they play in Utah and Denver, it always seems like they play very close. It's usually a one-possession game. A lot of times, the Nuggets or Jazz are able to pull out the wins in those scenarios. So I agree with you. There are a lot of teams and possibilities. Uh, there's always the Lakers when you consider if they added another piece uh, and LeBron is healthy. You can always not... You can't just let LeBron be not considered in that race, but one that stood out to me as right now, Toronto. Uh, Speaking of Toronto, Toronto is in San Antonio tonight, the the first time they're playing uh, each other since Kawhi Leonard and Boys traded and DeMar DeRozan traded. We know DeMar DeRozan probably circled uh, in February the game in Toronto, but this is the first close one uh, between these two. What are you expecting from tonight's game? You know, I think it should be a very well-played game. I'm wondering how the crowd is going to be receptive of Kawhi Leonard because, you know, a lot of the stories that came out painted Leonard in a bad light. Um, but I also feel like Spurs fans might be a little bit more appreciative, too, of Leonard for all that he's done for that team, too, in that franchise. Um, it was an ugly fallout. But I also don't think Popovich is going to also be disrespectful in any way. So I anticipate, you know, the, I, I think the Raptors will win this game. But I'm also very, very intrigued by how the fans are going to be receptive of Leonard when he hits the court tonight. You know, I'd be—I wouldn't be surprised if they boo. Uh, it's one of those moments where it's like Kawhi Leonard left this team. At the end of the day, he was traded away from this team. Kawhi Leonard wanted to leave this team. He wanted to leave this area. I get it. He's won a championship, but when you consider the championship and who is on it, you think it's more Tim Duncan's team. You think it's more Tony Parker's, Manu Ginobili's, Pops, and then Twice. Because Twice was at that level of just getting there before they won. 
uh, or when they won. Uh, and I, I'm I will not be surprised if he gets booed from the moment he enters that arena. And every time he touches the ball, I think he's going to get booed the entire game. Uh, so that's what I'm expecting from that matchup. Uh, I'm certainly excited for it. Toronto plays very well in Western Conference games. The Spurs are very hot at home lately, so that's exciting for me. Uh, I really like Toronto. I'm, 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 I'm tempted to pit Toronto tonight. Uh, so we'll see what happens on that part. Uh, with that, we'll jump into baseball. And you know, before we get into the players that are going on right now, uh, big trade with the Dodgers earlier uh, prior. I'm going to jump into the Hall of Fame because that is in January that we see the vote. And we're going to do this one as our bid topic for today for baseball. And for starters, I will, you know, there are a lot of new play, uh, players on the ballot. Uh, bid names that are on it is Mariano Rivera, Roy Holiday, Todd Helton, Andy Pettit, uh, Lance Berkman, Roy Oswalt. And from then on, it's, it, you know, there are bid name guys. That we hear. I'm sure you're going to love hearing Jason Bays on the ballot this year, Jose. Yeah, here we yeah, go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, guys that just won't get a lot of love, like Juan Pierre, is on the ballot. I think he should be, it's going to be real tough for him. But we'll start with the first year ballot guys. Uh, of these guys that I'm naming, Roy Holiday, Todd Helton, Andy Pettit, Lance Berkman, Roy Oswald, is any of these guys considered? a first-round ballot for you, or are there a couple that you consider Hall of Famers in a few years that we should be on the lookout for? Well, I think Mariano Rivera is definitely first ballot. If he's not unanimous, I still think it's crazy. Um, you know, the dumb writer from the Boston Globe who doesn't want to vote for him because he thinks saves are irrelevant, you're, you're clueless. And Mariano should be a first ballot Hall of Famer, should be the first unanimous, should be the second unanimous, because Ken Griffey Jr. should have been the first unanimous, but those three people decided not to vote for him. I can go on a rant for this, so I'm going to stop there, here. There's a lot of unanimous <laughs> players that should have been unanimous. Uh, right. Griffey, so, Randy Johnson stand out to me as far as Sure, or even Greg Maddox. Yep. Um, but going back to your question, Jeter in a few uh, years. to me, Mariano is a definitely a first ballot, in my opinion. I think Roy Halladay can make a strong case for first ballot as well, although I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't make it on his first try. Um, but also Todd Helton. To me, Todd Helton you know, is a guy that's going to get overlooked. I don't think he'll get in on the first try. I don't even know if he'll get in on the second try. I think Helton might be one of those guys where it takes him a while to get in, and I think that might be really sad because I think Todd Helton should actually be a first battle Hall of Famer. When you look at his stats and you look at all that he's done for Colorado, a real franchise player... And, you know, you've seen Larry Walker struggle, you know, and you wonder if the course field effect is going to have, you know, an effect on the voting. But I think Todd Hell is a different kind of player where he should get in on the first try. And I'm also interested in Lance Berkman because, again, this is another guy who had a really, really good career. Um, and I don't think he'll be, for, he'll be first ballot either. So, in my opinion, first ballot Hall of Famers, in my opinion, for their first year, Mariano for sure. I would like to see Todd Hell in and maybe Roy Halladay. So, I'd always love to hear like a percentage. Um, I, Todd Helton, I think, was a great uh, hitter, and I think we for, uh, very times, like you said, Coors Field. Uh, Larry Walker was the name you gave. Uh, so Larry Walker's at his ninth season, and he's at thirty-four percent. It's really hard to see Larry Walker getting that huge boost of percentage. 
Uh, but for Todd Helton, I see him in that like 45% range this season. If, if he can get to that range, I think he's certainly in that 33 to 40% range. So I think if he can already get to Larry Walker's status or above Larry Walker's status, I think that can be a great beginning for Todd Helton. Uh, Roy Holiday, yeah, it's tough. I, I really like Roy Holiday. His wins are just not up there at 203. His numbers are up there, though. And the hope for him is that, like, Kurt Schilling's at that 50 percentile. If uh, Roy Holiday can get to where Kurt Schilling's numbers are. And Schilling, 216 wins, 146 losses. Roy Holiday, 203 wins, 105 losses. A lower ERA than Kurt Schilling. A lower ERA than uh, Mike Messina. Uh, So... Those are the big standpoints. The only thing that really hurts Roy Holiday, just not not that many innings. 2,700 compared to the 3,500 and 3,200 that we see of Kurt Schilling and Mike Messina. Uh, but Roy Holiday puts himself in that like pitching potential. Uh, Rivera, like you, I think he's going to be in the 90... I'm going to say 98% range. If there was one Hall of Famer that I never thought was going to be the unanimous one, it was Rivera. Because he's a closer. And because, not to say I wouldn't vote for him, because I would if I had the vote. But there's going to be somebody out there that just will say, saves are irrelevant. The guy threw 1,200 innings. He was the best relief pitcher of all time. But does the best relief pitcher of all time get a first ballot vote. And the, the voters haven't really shown save much love. Billy Wagner's only at 10%. And, and Trevor Hoffman struggled mightily to get in. And Lee Smith, I don't even think, got in. And he's like third all-time in saves. So, I'm not going to lie, I'm a little concerned, because especially because of how you know, Hoffman's trials to get in, it took him three tries and we're talking about that's the second best closer ever in Trevor Hoffman. But to me, Mariano's just different. Yes, I, I agree. Mariano's different. I think the playoffs speak out for Mariano on why he's different and why he gets further consideration. Uh, I don't think there's ever a situation where three out of four people can't say Mariano is a Hall of Famer. Uh, but I certainly think there, when you consider nine out of ten, or you're talking about 19 out of 20. There, there's going to be there's one in a decent amount, and I think you're going to see him again. Randy Johnson got what 93 percent, and if you had to tell me which one do I want more, or who do I consider more, I'm going to take Randy Johnson over Mariano Rivera. And that's not a knock on either player, but that's just a to look at it just the way it is. Their voters are, and they did cut it down a, a lot, and I think that's a big reason why Randy Johnson's numbers were low. But uh, there are people that still will never give a vote for a first ballot Hall of Famer at the end of the day, and there are other ones as well. Um, I want to throw a couple other names of the first ballot guys out there as possibilities. And Andy Pettit, 256 wins. There's uh. 385 ERA, 3,300 innings. Where do you put him, especially when you consider the steroids error and steroid question mark parts for Andy Pettit? Well, to me, it's actually going to be really interesting to see where he does finish because 
you know, Roger Clemens and, you know, is probably his best, you know, comparable person pitcher who has all the stats, but also, you know, falls into that steroid category. He started very low because I feel like they've tried to punish these guys slowly as it's gone along. I feel like we're more in an era now where the writers don't necessarily care about that. You know, last year they were, you know, Roger Clemens is sitting at 57.3%. You know, I wouldn't be surprised that if, if on Pettit's first try, he gets a 40% or somewhere in the 50% range because it's just not the same voters as it was the past couple of years. So I feel like the voters now are a little bit more lenient. So I wouldn't be surprised to see Pettit get into 40 to 50% range. I don't think he's getting in on the first try because I think there still will be some people that are like, hell no, you use steroids, you don't belong here. But I do think Andy Pettit will have an easier path to the Hall of Fame than, let's say, a guy like Roger Clemens did. It's going to be tough uh, when you consider them. And uh, we're led into Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds uh, very shortly. Uh, you know, I think Andy Pettit, uh, when you compare his numbers to Roy Holiday, it's very close. Uh, it's going to be interesting where they put uh, Andy Pettit because there's really there's no one of comparison. For an Andy Pettit, especially when you consider the playoffs of what Andy Pettit has done uh, in his career, I, I certainly see Pettit having the possibility of getting to that 25 range on his first marker. Uh, the only thing that I hope is that he gets to like the the 10, 15. I don't think we're going to see Andy Pettit hit over 30. Uh, I think when you consider that there's just a lot of there'll be a lot of starting pitching. At that point, and I think Andy Pettit becomes the odd man out among them. So I think if Andy Pettit can just get through this year of the 5% threshold, and I think he should be able to get through that, um, we should see him uh, get to that like 15 20%. And I think he should be able to surpass this season and move up past that. But I think Andy Pettit's got a struggling challenge. Um, another name, like you said, Lance Berkman stands out. You know, Todd Helton is a three sixteen batting average. He has the highest batting average among all the ballot guys among this. Uh, but Bergman, we often forget, is one of the greatest switch hitters of all time. He's batting his career at two ninety three batting average, just a ton of stats. Uh, is there? A, do you put him above a Jeff Kent status? Uh, I do. I think Berkman is a lot. Um, you know. I, I think Berkman's a guy that also scores maybe in a 30, 40% range, kind of like close to a Larry Walker type, um, you know, percentage for when he debuted on the ballot. Um, to me, again, I mentioned before Berkman to me, I think I would put him into the hall of fame. I, he would get a vote for me, but I feel like a lot of people are going to overlook him because they just forget, you know, who Lance Berkman is in a way, if you get what I mean. So I'm not going to give a lot of the other names. Uh, I can name them off. Foya, Miguel Tejada, Palastro Polanco, Kevin Uchilis, Derek Lowe. Basically, Jose, if you don't tell me when to stop, pretty much, for any of these. Uh, Vernon Wells, I remember him plenty of years on the Blue Jays. Ted Willey, uh, always got him as a traveler. Uh, Jason Bay, I know you would love some positive talk about Jason Bay. Uh, Michael Young is an interesting one. I think Michael Young is more Texas Rangers Hall of Fame. I agree, yeah. Then MLB Hall of Fame, uh, John Dolan, Darren Oliver. Remember him when he was on the Mets. Uh, well, Rick- to me, what's funny is to me, Darren Oliver is a really like example, really really good reliever, but he won't get in because that's all he is—just a really really good reliever. Yeah, uh, and 
you know, still not not great enough relieving stats to make me want to put you in. Right. It's a four and a half ERA. Um, but at the end of the day, you had 118 wins. And it's it's something to consider at the end of the day. But now it's but one name I do want to mention, I know his war is weak. And Amon guys on war. And I'm a big guy that likes war. He's got the lowest among the low when it comes to this ballot. Uh, besides Rick Antiel. That's Juan Pierre. And this is the last like speedster we consider among the damn that used you know, his lights to make him the player that he was. 600 plus stolen bases, 295 batting average. This guy always seemed to get on base at the end of the day. Over a thousand runs stored. Um, does he have a shot of just, let me just put it, does he have a shot to just get through 5%? And the reason we always mention 5% is, as always, uh, if you don't get over 5% on any given year among the vote, is you're immediately out of the voting. And I think it's 10 years for every player they are on the ballot for a maximum of, and you need 75 I think it's 75 exactly, right? 75% of the vote to get into the Hall of Fame. I believe so, yes. Yeah. Um, I think Juan Pierre gets above five for this year, but I could see him falling off for next year. I just want him to get above five. I just want him to get into another season. Um, well, I mean, there's a lot of guys on this list that I feel like should get above five, but they're probably not. Like, I can look at it and say, I feel like Roy Oswalt deserves above five. I feel like Miguel Tejada deserves above five. You know, you go down the list. Michael Young definitely deserves above five. You know, Juan Pierre deserves above, above five. You know, these are guys that deserve to get votes. Maybe not in the 70% range, but some of these guys do deserve to be on the ballot for more than one year. Yeah, but you don't really get that often. And no, think, you don't. I think you've got to keep in mind, when we, when we talk about 5%, and it's like, oh, how hard is it to get 5% of that vote? Well, let me throw an easy name out for you. Carlos Delgado did not receive 5% of the vote. Yeah, or Kenny Lofton. And that's another speedster type player like a Juan Pierre. They they did not get nearly enough to get themselves in five percent. And Carlos Delgado hit over four hundred home runs. This was no slouch hitter. When you consider that five hundred is the number you need to get you to the Hall of Fame, he hit in the four hundreds, and he was not able to get in that five percent range. And um, also, multi-time Gold Glove winner Andrew Jones. Last year was his first year on the ballot. He got 7.3. Yeah. So, so he came very close to falling off the ballot in his first try. There are 15 players on the ballot uh, that are in their, uh, in multi-years, and we're going to cover each one of them, and we're going to start from the bottom to the top. I think that's a fair way of going. Uh, let's take it with the first two, and that's Sammy Sosa and, as you mentioned, Andrew Jones. Both of them pretty much at the same. 7.3, 7.8, Sammy Sosa ahead of him. Uh, seven years to two years with Sosa on that one. Uh, let's put this real. Rivera coming in, Roy Holiday coming in, Todd Helton coming in, who I think is better numbers than both of them, uh, a better chance of going above both of them. Do you see either one of them getting past 5% or is Sammy Sosa the first eliminated, uh, ster- uh, first eliminated steroid one? 
Uh, I think they'll both get eliminated, and I think Sammy Sosa will be the first. Or, um, I, maybe Mark McGuire was the first, but Sosa's just right up there as well. Or McGuire right. I, I think years. they both fall off the ballot. I think with all these new people coming in this year, I feel like anybody who scored below 20 is at risk of getting off the ballot. Well, Because every year you get a new batch of people where and it's only going to get harder from here. Like this year, to me, Rivera, Halliday, Helton, Pettit, Berkman, and even Oswald, to me, have a real shot of getting decent results. That's six guys. You know, so that's six additional guys that can get a real shot of getting 20% or higher, which would push the rest of the guys down. Yeah, I I certainly think you you can make a case for all six guys getting minimum 5%. I think Roy Oswald's the hardest one to make the case for. But I think when you still talk about five guys that can get 5% of the vote, that's detrimental to other, uh, other guys. And so... I think with uh, I'm on the same page with you. I think this is Andrew Jones' last year. I don't think we ever considered Andrew Jones a Hall of Famer. It was just how many years can he be on the ballot for? I think Sosa has fallen off. I think it's very tough to give a consideration for Andrew Jones over Todd Helton to give a Sammy Sosa over Todd Helton. I think it becomes very uh, interesting on a debate for a Lance Berkman, especially when we cover the next. Uh, core group I'm going to give you. Uh, so I'm not going to stay on this one much longer. I think Sosa Jones both off. I think you think the same way. N- neither one is going to get over 5% and they're both going to be eliminated uh, from the ballot. Uh, from this next match, I'm going to give it a larger one just because Scott Rowland, Billy Wagner, Gary Sheffield, Jeff Kent. Now of these four, 14.5% is Jeff Kent. 11.1 is Gary Sheffield, Billy Wadner, and Scott Rowland is 10.2%. Um, of the four, who do you like the most? Of the four, I really like Billy Wagner. Um, it's, it's like you said. I mean, unfortunately, Billy Wagner is not great enough in, in the likes of Hoffman and Rivera to receive great consideration, even though I would vote for Billy Wagner, honestly. But to me, he falls victim of, oh, well, we care about closers, but not enough to put guys like Billy Wagner into the Hall of Fame. So I like Billy Wagner. I also like Gary Sheffield, but I see these guys, you know, I think all these guys will still be on the ballot, but they'll be very close to getting eliminated maybe the year after. I think this is a deep elimination class. And I'm not talking about just the first-year ballots, because very often we see a lot of the first-year ballots just not survive uh, the ballot. Um I think Scott Rowland falls off because if you had to compare Scott Rowland to Todd Helton or Lance Berkman, Jose, I think you pick Todd Helton and you pick Lance Berkman over Scott Rowland. So I think he falls off. Uh, I was very happy to see Billy Wagner just stay above the 5% threshold. And I think for a long time, he's going to stay over the 5% threshold. But I don't see him ever going up on the path. Uh, Gary Sheffield's an interesting one. He's he's cracked the 500 home run club. So a lot of times that's usually always to get you in. But this is this is a very big challenge for Gary Sheffield. I um I think he falls back a couple notches, and it's a tough debate between him and Todd Helton. I think far more choose Todd Helton uh, overall. Gary Sheffield only uh, was a 60 percent war guy. Uh, Todd Helton had a higher war, uh, so 
and when you consider his best four, his best like seven year span was only thirty eight compared to Todd Helton, who was much higher at forty six. So I think there there are bigger standpoints of who the better player was. And I think when you consider the numbers, Todd Helton pushes Gary Sheffield and Jeff Kent. Uh, you know, a lot of these guys, I think, fall off. I think Scott Rowland also falls off. For him to have 10% in his second year, I think this is a tough year for him to try and double that percentage. I think it gets halved. I think he takes a major hit. When guys like Mariano Rivera, Roy Holiday, Todd Helton all come in, it's bad news for a guy like Scott Rowland at the end of the day. And Jeff Kent, six years, he's not even over the 15% mark. It's tough to see him getting much further. Uh, Fred McGriff and Manny Ramirez. Fred McGriff in his 10th uh, year on the ballot. Manny Ramirez on his third year. One's at 22, one's at 23%. What's your take on either one of them? Well, to me, Fred McGriff will probably get a higher percentage, in my opinion, because you know guys who are in their last year on the ballot tend to get that one final push. But I also don't think McGriff is going to get enough to get to 75%. I mean, you're asking for a major climb um, at that point, and I just don't see it um, possible. Manny Ramirez, I feel like so many people are fed up with his stuff. These guys will still be, well, McGriff will be eliminated off the ballot this year since it is his 10th and final year. But Manny will still be on the ballot next year. But let's just face it, Manny's not gaining any traction. Yeah, it's tough for me to see Fred McGriff has a shot. Um if this is his final year, and I, I, yeah, it is both Edgar Martinez and Fred McGriff's final year. Uh, Edgar Martinez, we'll talk about as we get further up on the uh, chart. Um, you know, there, there is a, he should be a Hall of Famer. 493 home runs for Fred McGriff. You talked about that 500 class, he deserves to be in it. 1,550 RBIs, uh, more than Larry Walker. Uh, more than Jeff Kent, more than guys that are far above him, way more than Edgar Martinez. So there, there's real, it, it, it hurts to see a guy like him not to be higher considerations. Uh, 284 batting average, 377 on base percentage, uh, higher than Omar Vestwell's, uh, that's above him. Uh, there, there's a lot of guys that you're making the case that are above him that shouldn't be. Uh, Manny Ramirez, to me, it's it's tough because I know steroid guys are getting votes and they're on the rise. Um, guys like Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds are on the rise. They're over the 50% threshold. They started off at like that 38 37%. So they, they have gone up over six years or at least 3%. Each year, they continue to get on the rise. I'm sure they're going to get over the 60% uh, when it comes to them. But Manny Ramirez, this guy failed two PED tests. And he still hit the 22% as he enters his third year. I think I think Manny Ramirez is by far the most insulting one on the ballot. So on my list, that to me is the most insulting one because he's failed tests. He's been suspended for PEDs. And yet one out of five, more than that, consider him a Hall of Famer with that behind him. I think that's the worst part of it all for me uh, when it comes to Manny Ramirez. I would love to see him drop significantly this season on the ballot. Um, I would love to see him fall off. 
uh, because he just does not deserve to be there at the end of the day. I, any issues with me on that Manny Ramirez stuff? No, you you've completely hit it right on the. You know, you you got it on point with that one. I'm not showing any support for him, so <laughs> you know to worry about that. So, the next two on the ballot we'll cover uh, six and seven. So we're almost there. Uh, Omar Vesquel, Larry Walker, Larry Walker, thirty four percent. He's in his ninth year. Omar Vesquel, thirty seven percent. He's in his second year. These are two guys that are basically on the direct opposite spots. So for Larry Walker, his ninth year. This is basically the beginning of the end for him. I, I We talked about those pushes that you get, but the guys coming in like Todd Helton have better numbers than Larry Walker. You expect Todd Helton to take off some of his numbers, and I think he winds, Larry Walker is just a year away from Fred McGriff, where it's like you're not going to be eliminated because of the 5%, but you're never going to get enough percentage to get in, and that's where Larry Walker is at. But it's Omar Vesquel is really the question I have for you. 37% is a, good, is a strong number still for just his first year for Omar Vesquel. Does Omar Vesquel's percent rise this year? Because that's going to be the really, I think, the, the make-or-break moment for him. Yeah, you know, I think it does. Um, and I think, I think this year on a ballot will definitely tell you what's going to happen with Vesquel, right? Obviously, if it rises, he has a very good shot. Of getting in, if it declines, eh, it doesn't look so good for him this year, right? We're talking about five guys, like we said, we named Rivera, who probably gets in, who won't be there the following year. Halliday might be a holdover. Helton might be a holdover. Pettit might be a holdover, and Berkman as well, too. So you're only looking at four guys who may be still competitive with Fisquel for years to come as it keeps going along. And he's only in year two. And we're talking about a guy who, again, very good defender who might get into the Hall of Fame really because of his defense as well. A very good hitter, too, as well, too. So Vizquel definitely has a case, and I feel like a strong showing last year, 37% to me, I think that's a pretty strong number to get on your first try, especially for a guy like Vizquel. I feel like he trends upward this year. 2,800-plus hits, 2,877. You know, he's not at that 3,000 mark, but he's damn close. Over 10,000 at-bats this guy had. Almost 3,000 games played. Um, to me, it's going to be very interesting because um, I think if a defining point for Omar Vestwell will be can he get above 37 this year? And that will be the real challenge because a guy like Todd Helton, again, I put above Omar Vistwell. And if you're voting for guys, how high do you, how many guys do you put above Omar Vistwell? Does he make your ballot this year? That doesn't mean I think he's going to be eliminated. That means I think he's going under 37. And that will be a challenge for him because it will be then to try and get back up. It will be to try and beat out the best guys. And for Omar Vistwell, it's almost like, will he wind up like the Larry Walker friend McGriff? Because if you fall back a couple steps, it's very tough to jump back up. You need to be almost on the rise every single year. And if you're not, you wind up in no man's land like Larry Walker and Fred McGriff. So Omar Vestwell is on that trending water. 
where he's going to be one of the more interesting guys to watch because we see time and time again guys moving up and then other guys that stand still. And if Omar Vesuel is standing still, he's basically one of those guys that we know. He's going to be on the ballot every year, and it's just going to be come those 10 years before he's off the ballot type of thing. Uh, next, we're at the final five. Kurt Schilling, 51% had over 50. Uh, he's on the se- uh, seventh year of the ballot. You know, his numbers speak for himself, his playoffs speak for himself. Is he a Hall of Famer in your mind? Does he get above this 51%? Can he get towards this 60% mark? Yeah, you know, I may not like the guy. You know, Kirk Schilling's not my favorite person in the world. Do I think he's a jerk? For sure. Do I think he's an idiot? For sure. But I also can't deny that he was a really great pitcher in MLB um, for a lot of years. And, you know, is he a Hall of Famer? Yeah, definitely for sure, in my opinion. And, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, he I think he will get over the 51 percent mark. Um, But also uh, the question is, how much higher does he go up? I feel like he gets in a 60 percent range uh, this time around. But it's also his seventh year on the ballot. So he only has about four years left, technically, um, including this one. Well, this is his seventh year. So four years, including this year. Um, So to me, he has a very good chance. He's at 51. You only need about. 25% 25% over the next four years. Uh, I mean, you do the math. It's very, very obtainable in my opinion. You know, it's it's very interesting at this point because the top five guys for the last few years have had a lot of challenges. And I think that's one of the things we've... You know, you, got, you face guys like Ken Griffey. You face guys like Mike Piazza. Uh, as well as... You jump in, into really tough ballots. Chipper Jones on the ballot. And you just know these guys are going to pass you. You know you're not going to have enough above them. But for this year, for Kurt Schilling, his toughest challenge, uh, the, are the guys above him already? And then I think from there, it's like Mariano Rivera and Todd Helton. Roy Holiday. There's not much ahead of him. That he should be able to make the ballot on guys that full out a lengthy ballot that I think Kurt Schilling certainly should get, I'm going to say, in that 60% range. I think this is a great year for Kurt Schilling to get very close or close enough to that 75 threshold where this could be his big moment of getting above. Um, It almost looks like, I think, the Mike Messina number, Mike Messina is at 63. I think Kurt Schilling should be able to get close to a Mike Messina number. This season, and he probably have the biggest jump, I think, among all uh, ballot members. So I think he's going to need to jump pretty high. Uh, Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds. It seems like every year they're one percent difference. Fifty-seven, fifty-six. When I think they first started off, they were thirty-eight, thirty-nine, or thirty-eight, thirty-seven. They were right there. They're also in their seventh year. We don't have to talk about the numbers. The numbers speak for themselves. If it was just a number standpoint, their first ballot Hall of Famers, uh, the same number percentages as Ken Griffey Jr. or higher. Uh, But we're not talking about their numbers. We're talking about other stuff as well. Jose, for starters, are they Hall of Famers in your mind? In my mind, no. I mean, uh, you know, these are guys who, uh, you know, they cheated. 
they they flat out they cheated. They took steroids. They knowingly took it. They can lie all they want, or some people did lie, especially on Congress. Um, but they cheated. They flat out cheated the game. Um, and you can argue that yeah, they were Hall of Famers even before they took it. But yes, but they still needed. They still they feel they felt like they still needed to take the steroids in order to help them better their game or for whatever reason. Flat out is that they they still cheated. So honestly, if I'm voting. I don't vote for steroid users. However, I know that there are people out there who don't care about that. So I or think 50%. eventually, yeah, I mean, no, and, and it's climbing every single year because some people at this point are just like, well, you can't, and I understand the argument of, well, we can't just not put them in because these guys, they are part of a, a major era in baseball where they were the best players. Roger Clemens was the best pitcher for a long period of time. Barry Bonds was the best hitter for a long period of time, too. And I understand it's very hard to decipher. Uh, well, we can't pinpoint when they started taking it, and their stats were already good, even before Barry Bonds' neck doubled in size. So I get that. And if you want to vote for them, sure. I'm not going to knock on you, but it's my personal preference that if I had a vote, I wouldn't. But I do think these guys will climb. I can actually see them getting that Mike Messina number, or even a 65% on their seventh year, leaving them three years left to make up the 10%. I think eventually they will get in, but I don't think it'll be this year. I don't think it will be this year. It's it is tough to say three out of four people will vote for Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds, and I think that's the big challenge. I think they get up in percentages. I think they rise to above sixty. I'm gonna say they go as high as like you know sixty five, sixty six percent. I think they're going to have a large jump of that 10% threshold, and they become the biggest debate for next season among them. But as far as right now, I don't think they get in, and I think their biggest challenge is going to be the three out of four. It's not going to be the... the, the, There are percentages that are going to vote for them. So if that's what it is, is 56% is going to vote for Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, Okay, that's 56. Now does that get to, uh, does the number of the ballots get cut down? Possibly. Will that rise their number? Sure. But there's going to be a point where we've reached a certain amount of voters where they're just not going to vote for Barry Bonds and Roger Clements. And I think that could be the blocking point for them on whether they get in or not for the Hall of Fame. But it's going to be very close when it comes to the two of them. I don't think they get in this season, but there is no reason to say for them that their 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 stock is going to increase. That that's the end of the day. There's no way I can look in and say, hey, they're not going to increase because they've gone up every single year since their first year on the ballot. It's been a fight for them and a climb, but they've gone up every year. Uh, the last pitcher on our mark is Mike Messina, who finished at 63.5%. He's on the sixth year of his ballot. Is this the year for him? So my answer to that would be no. I feel like there's just enough, a good amount of people this year. Like we mentioned, the five guys that we keep mentioning, Mariano, Halliday, Helton. I think those five guys prevent him from getting in this year. But I could still see Messina getting that Edgar Martinez number now. I could see Messina cracking the 70% number and then maybe shooting for a strong case the following year. Um, you know, Mike Messina is a very sneaky Hall of Famer, in my opinion, too. A lot of people are like, Mike Messina, really? But I'm like, yeah, this guy is really good. 
And he did it predominantly playing in the AL East, which is not an easy division, <laughs> you know, at all, either this year or in the past couple of years when he was pitching. And he did it for when he was on the Orioles. So he was facing teams like the Yankees and the Red Sox 18 times a year. When he was on the Yankees, he was facing the Red Sox, a team like the Red Sox 18 times a year, and the Blue Jays when they were more of a heavy hitting team. So this is a pitcher that deserves to get in, in my opinion. But I see him getting the 70%. Maybe he makes it this year. But I do think there's just a good amount of people that will stop him from getting uh, over that 75%. I have Mike Messina getting in at bare minimum. I'm going to say 77%. So I'm giving him in. He's going to have a huge jump. Um, And the fact is, there's just no one really above him. So that's really the thing for me, is there's only one, there's only two players above him at this point, and that's Edgar Martinez and Mariano Rivera. I don't consider Roy Holiday above Mike Messina, and Todd Helton is the next closest guy, and I don't know if he's above Mike Messina. I think he's above Omar Vestwell. I think he's above Kurt Schilling. I think he's the same amount or right around the same amount of the Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. Uh, I, I'm very high on Todd Helton, so this is going to be probably the one I get really off on. But assuming that I'm looking at it like that, Mike Messina is the best starting pitcher among the ballot. And to me, that's enough to say people are going to put him on their ballot more often with a weaker class. And I look at that more. And I'm going to say Mike Messina gets in. And I'm going to give him that 77%. And that's going to be a large jump um, for him. And I think he gets in on his sixth year. Well earned. And I do agree he's a Hall of Famer. All right. Last one on this. And then I'm going to ask you to give me your own ballot is Edgar Martinez. Where do you have him going? Hall of Fame. And if he doesn't, I am willing to flip a table or start a riot or pitchfork and, and torches. Because to me, I think it's embarrassing that it's taken this long for Edgar to try and get in. But I feel like, again, the, the Hall of Fame voters do give a little bit of an extra push to guys on their last year on the ballot. We saw it with Jack Morris and stuff like that. So it's Edgar's last year. He's at 70.4. I'm pretty sure 5% of the voters will give him an extra push to get over. Alrighty. And for me, I got the same thing. Uh, Edgar Martinez gets in. Normally, when it comes to that last, you get that push. He's already at 70%. It's very tough to consider anybody other than the name of Mariano Rivera above him. It should be on most people's ballot. Mariano Rivera and then Edgar Martinez. There are good enough reasons to not vote. Edgar Martinez. So this isn't like I'm making it sound like he's jumping from 70 to 85%. No. He's going to get the 70% he got. He's going to get that five extra push percentage because of that last valid vote year. But there are people that just are not going to vote for a DH, are not going to vote for him, that are not the, we call it nerds of baseball. Um... So there are plenty of reasons to not vote for him. Uh, I think he gets close to the same percentage. Uh, I'm going to give him about like 82%. It's going to be a large jump again, uh, 12, but 
I think that should be good enough for him. Uh, lastly, Jose, before we get into Dude and Dunce of the Week, uh, is give me your ballot. How many people do you have going on it, and what does it look like? Well, my ballot, first and foremost, is Edgar Martinez. Um, I'm also choosing Mike Messina. I will also choose Omar Vizquel as my third choice. And then I'll round it out with guys like Billy Wagner, Mariano Rivera, Roy Halladay, Todd Helton, Lance Berkman. And I'll even throw in a vote for Michael Young and Juan Pierre just because, you know, I want to vote for those guys. Um, but obviously I don't see them getting in. But that would be my 10 guys. All right. So I'll give mine. Uh, Eddie Martinez, Mike Messina. Easy two for me. I'm going to go Fred McGriff as my third. Uh, from there as well, I'm going to go Mariano Rivera, Todd Helton, Lance Berkman, Larry Walker, Omar Vestwell, Billy Wadner, and lastly, I'm going to try and do my best for my 10th vote of getting Juan Pierre to that 5% threshold. Uh, you're going to see it on Twitter a lot. So Rossman Beard is going to be putting out a lot of Juan Pierre support. So uh, we're not endorsing Jason Bay? Is that not a thing? We're going to endorse Jason Bay and Juan Pierre. <laughs> um, with the hopes of just Juan Pierre. That will be the game plan. We're going to endorse both. And then we're going to come to a settling agreement on just Juan Pierre. Okay. <laughs> All right. We're good for that. And That so works for me. That will be my 10. I'm really hoping for Fred Madriff, but there's just no way he's going to get that high. Uh, I did not have Omar Vestwell on mine. I think just games played is just not enough to give me a reason for Omar Vestwell. Uh, but with that, we're going to give the final thoughts. Um, let's try and give a baseball one on this because I know we didn't cover a lot of the baseball stuff going on. Uh, still Bryce Harper meeting with the Phillies. Manny Machado has not signed. They did sign a different shortstop in Troy Tulowitzki for the Yankees. Uh, so with that, before we jump into our dude and dunce of the week and our beard back, Jose, what is your final thoughts for uh, episode 35? You want this before we uh, give our dude and dunce of the week? Yeah, why not? We'll give, yeah, well, we'll give a baseball one here, and then okay. we'll give a final thought. Well, I think it's, um, you know, the Yankees signed Troy Tulowitzki yesterday, which I think surprised a lot of people. I know it surprised me. Um, I wonder what that means for the Manny Machado sweepstakes. You know, does that mean the Yankees are out? Um, I think it is a good move, though, if the Yankees don't sign Machado and keep Tulowitzki, because, you know, we can't deny Tulowitzki's a very, very talented hitter when he's healthy. And you're and if you're the Yankees, you're only asking Tulowitzki to be healthy for half the year until D.D. Gregorius comes back. And guess what? If Tulowitzki can muster up at least half a year's worth of production, you can always try and flip Tulowitzki to a team that desperately needs offense and try and get something for him. I think playing in Yankee Stadium will definitely help him, as it's helped a lot of other guys. But, you know, don't sleep on the move. I know a lot of Yankee fans are scratching their heads saying, why are we getting this guy? But don't sleep on the move of too low to the Yankees. So I'm going to take the final thought of the trade that the Dodgers and Reds made. It sent Alex Wood, Yasiel Plead, Matt Kemp to the Cincinnati Reds. And going to the Dodgers was Homer Bailey, a couple minor prospects. And a lot of people look at this as, you know, either cap opening or Bryce Harper opening. Uh, I don't think it's either one for the Dodgers. It's space opening. 
not necessarily needing a Bryce Harper in your lineup. You're not necessarily needing a Manny Machado. You have a ton of hitters to begin with already. This is to open up some space for this team. They have like six outfielders. They have like five infielders. They have plenty of position players to begin with. And they have even guys like Chad Taylor and Kiki Hernandez, who I believe are guys that could start on most teams or play practically every day for most teams, especially Taylor. And they're guys that are just relative to the bench for just games for days off and breathers for other guys. They're good enough to be putting in the starting lineup. So I think for that standpoint, for the Dodgers, this was more space opening than cap opening or trying to sign Bryce Harper. And for the Reds, I like this move. It's a good relevancy move. It's to say, you know, we're back. We're still in this. We're still going to compete. And we're going to put big names with a guy like Joey Votto still. And I think for Votto, I think this is important for him. Because when you look at it and say he's been on a team that just cannot win, put guys that are veterans, a guy especially in Matt Kemp, a veteran, I think it just helps Joey Votto even with, you know, just having a bit more fun to help him out. So I really like this move, not just for anything else, but just for helping out both teams with their rosters in general. It's a good move at the end. As far as our beard back of the week, it's January 3rd. We're in the new year. And in 1991, Wayne Dretzky scored his 700th goal on January 3rd against the New York Islanders. And in 2016, Jimmy Butler breaks Michael Jordan's Chicago Bulls record for most points in a half, scoring 40 of his 42 in the second half to lead the Bulls in a 115-113 win over the Raptors, so he's passing Jordan somewhere, uh, so it still counts. And with it, our dude of the week, we're going to give it to last night's basketball player, Joel Embiid, 42 points, 18 rebounds, and just a huge game as well. He had three steals and two blocks and a 132 to 127 win over the Phoenix Suns. Uh, So Joel Embiid is our dude of the week. And Jose, who is our dunce of the week? My dunce of the week is Chris Vial. You may not know, recognize the name, but he's a New York Mets round six pick in the draft last year. And why is he my dunce of the week? Why am I coming after someone who played for the Brooklyn Cyclones, Nick? Well, long story, and I've been waiting to tell you this on the podcast and to our followers, Chris Vial decided to follow me on Instagram. So I thought, pretty cool. This professional athlete who plays for one of my favorite teams, it wants to follow me on Instagram. So what did I do? I accepted his follow request, and I followed him back, because that's just the kind of guy I am, Nick. And then guess what? The guy unfollows me two days later, because why? He's trying to get cheap followers, and my dude, if you're going to do that to me, I will know. I will find out. I did find out, and now I have unfollowed you. So if anybody knows Chris Vial. You can find him at the Instagram handle of at C-M-V-A-L, V-I-A-L-L. Let him know. I unfollowed him because that is a cheap way to get followers, my friend. Get your own followers. Get them authentically. Do not follow me and then unfollow because I will unfollow you back. Harsh words. (laughs) I'm just saying, man. It's too bad we didn't, uh, we don't still do the Staten Island Yankee stuff, man. We could have uh, <laughs> we could have pressed them for it when they visited Staten Island. Oh, that would have been fun. 
going on a rent or in the third inning of a game. <laughs> All right, with that, we have our final thoughts. And so my final thoughts is I know I'm going to take a little bit of heat for not giving um, Jokic our dude of the week. He certainly should have earned it, but the fact is he's playing the New York Knicks. So I'm not going to give a 19, Burn. 14, and 15. I should, but I'm not going to give it to it because he's playing the New York Knicks. Um, and we're just used to seeing him put up fantastic triple-double numbers at this point. Can't give it always to Russell Westbrook for his triple-doubles numbers. I can't give it to Jokic. Uh, but final thought for the New York Knicks and the New York Knicks fans. We, as Speaking as a fan, we have just one request. Please lose. Just lose every game, New York. You are so close for the number one seed right? Uh, for the first pitch possibility. Uh, the Knicks are 9-29. and 29. Cleveland is eight and thirty, and the Suns are nine and thirty. Look, we're we're right there between the Cavs, and the Cavs do not deserve another number one pitch. So we're right there between the Phoenix Suns and the New York Knicks. And what better place for Zion Williams to go than the New York Knicks? So Knicks, just lose, just lose every time. And Knicks fans, we should be booing every shot they make. It came close to winning in Denver. That would have been a bad situation right there. So that is my final thoughts. It's the hope that the Knicks lose. And, Jose, what is your final thoughts to wrap up our 35th podcast? Uh, well, Knicks keep on losing, so my Brooklyn Nets can keep on winning. And we're going to the playoffs, Nick. I cannot wait for the first playoff game. Well, not the first, but a playoff game in a long time for the Brooklyn Nets at the Barclays. Yeah, the Brooklyn Nets got the win over the Pelicans. They're still yeah. out of it, though, right now. Yeah, I mean, we're going to get in, and we're going to get bounced in the first round, but we're still going to make the playoffs. So take that, New York. <laughs> I'll say this to Fro. He's, he's had some impressive blots. No, I, I mean, in all seriousness, the Nets do have a lot of young promise when it's, you know, Jared Allen or D'Angelo Russell's playing really well, too, when he's focused in on only playing basketball. Um, you know, the Nets do need to bring someone in with some star power, but it's hard to do when, you know, you're, you know, you can't really convince someone to come here. Someone really has to take a chance. So pay a lot of money, pay a lot of money. That's all yep. you can do. Well, you brought in Jeremy Lin one year. <laughs> yep. And uh, I'm pretty sure we'll, we'll be aiming for Rajon Rondo maybe next year. It's a good game plan. Alright, thank you so much for listening to podcast episode 35 of Sarasso and the Beard. Once again, I am Nick Sarasso. And I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And enjoy the football games this weekend. Again, I have the Colts, the Cowboys, the Chargers, and the Bears this weekend. And Jose, he's got pretty much the opposite of me. He's got the Tetsons, the Seahawks, the Ravens, and we agreed on one, the Bears this weekend. So, a lot of fun parts. On this podcast, episode 35, thank you so much for listening and enjoy your day. And Happy New Year to everybody. It's a little late, but still at the end of it all, Happy New Year. Welcome into 2019.